idiots. Like Casey says, fella ain't got a soul of his own, just a little piece of a big soul. The one big soul that belongs to everybody. Then... Then what, Doc? Then it don't matter. I'll be all around in the dark. I'll be everywhere. Wherever you can look. Wherever there's a cop beating up a guy. I'll be there. I'll be in the way kids laugh when they're hungry and they know supper's ready. And when the people are eating the stuff they raise and living in the houses they build, I'll be there too. I don't understand it, though. Me neither, Ma, but just something I've been thinking about. You're listening to the All That's Holy Blue Collar Podcast. Thought-provoking interviews with interesting guests and commentary on everything. Food, sports, gardening, politics, music, movies, comedy, you name it, we talk about it. Featuring your hosts, the Queen, Christina Marfus, Codemaster Codeman, Cody Stoffer, and Crash Test Craig, Craig Morton. These three are allergic to big words, but not to big ideas. Profound things will be said, but entirely by accident. this episode of the podcast, Craig interviews our guest, Liza Long, author of the viral blog post, I Am Adam Lanza's Mother, and author of the book, The Price of Silence, A Mom's Perspective on Mental Illness. Craig also interviews a special guest, Matt Kamey, the executive director of the Fuller Institute for Theology and Northwest Culture and director of Christ in Cascadia, a journal and conference that serves leaders and communities doing ministries in the Pacific Northwest. Our three intrepid hosts talk about circular airports, the best way to steal clothing from celebrities, the Queen of England's ravenous horde of carnivorous corgis, and supersonic shrimp. You don't want to miss it. Music comes from the Strumbellas, Lady Gaga, Eminem, and Hanson. Hi. Hello. Good morning. Sorry to keep you guys waiting. No, no. We had a, oh. a little mini conversation about sports nicknames. Oh, okay. So. Well, I probably wouldn't have been much help. So. <laughs> well, that, that, we, we, that's what we thought you'd say. <laughs> Good. Glad we're all on the same page on that one. Yes. How, however, do you have a favorite sports nickname? Can you think of one? I don't know if I even know any sports nicknames. Ooh. I mean, at least I, I couldn't think of one off the top of my head. That's... You know, I think there's a lot of learning for you still. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a big, wide world out there. I would hope so. Yeah, I say that to somebody who's going to travel around the world while I sit <laughs> in, uh, in, in Meridian, Idaho. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, who do you who do you think you're talking to, Mister? Yeah, I know, I know. Oh, well, I haven't left right there. Yeah, well, that's true. She's going to. Of course, I bet, well, I don't know. If she's going to different countries, she might have to get up on soccer a little bit. Oh, yeah. Um, actually, yeah, I just got connected with all of the people that I'm going to be traveling with, and there are some really hardcore soccer fans. Yep, I figure. Wow. Oh, Speaking boy. Of, did, did you hear what happened with uh, Nigeria last night? No, what happened? Oh, my gosh. Don't scare so, me. The, the, Man- the Manchester um, United uh, you know, their team also has a lot of other United teams that they own or yeah. sponsor around the world. Mm-hmm. And so their team in Nigeria 
I don't know if it's Nigeria United, there a massive power line fell and landed in the audience. Oh, holy crap! And that's uh, like wow. That's you know that's 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 like at a, a NASCAR or some racing event where a car goes over the wall or something. I mean, it's just it's just oh. terrible and makes you makes you I don't know. Just it was wow. it was a catastrophic event. Wow, that Jeez. is crazy. That really is. So yeah, I follow soccer a little bit, and I never intend to to see those kinds of headlines. But no, no kidding. Wow, 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 wow. Okay, so what are we doing? Who's, Craig, you're running the show, buddy. Well, hey, so I I, I sent out a thing saying, yeah. hey, how about if we talk about uh, something something from the news that you saw this last week that you thought was kind of interesting, cool, whatever. Yes. And uh, I did. I did. I did that. Because I saw something that I thought was really, really cool. <laughs> Wait, you think that was cool? No, I, well, not that Jeez. one. No, no, oh. no, no. I, no, this one, this one's a fun one. Oh, okay, let's hear it. And I, I just think it's so. I, this is on BBC. Yeah. And um, there are there's a new way of designing airports that, to me, that sounds like a boring topic. <laughs> yes. Um. But, to most people, that sounds like a boring topic. So here, here's the idea. You create a circle that's nine kilometers long, or a circumference. Circumference, yeah. The airport terminal is in the middle, the hub of that, that wheel. Okay. And then spokes of that wheel are the, how the airplanes taxi out to the circle. Huh. And that circle is how the planes take off and land. Wait, wait, wait. Don't they need a straight line to do that? <clears throat> Apparently not. Really? And so and so the runway itself is slightly concaved shaped. Okay. So you know, kind of like a like a velodrome track, I guess. You know, and it, it's uh, you know the bicycle tracks where they run oh, yeah, right yeah, around yeah. in circles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's a it's a sloped bank and slightly concave. And so as the plane goes faster, I guess it kind of slides. You know, traction pulls it up. Centrifugal force pulls it up to the edge of this uh. this runway. The thing is that it's concave. Also, it means the wing tip um, is, I guess, just a mere feet above the tarmac. Oh, jeez. But uh, it saves fuel since it's uh, taking off basically in a a bowl. It has less sound escape to go into neighborhoods or nearby places. So it saves fuel, reduces air pollution, and also means that I think I said three to four airplanes can land and take off at the same time. And and the airplane can always land uh, the most advantageous angle to whatever wind is blowing. Wow. So That's what really I thought, interesting. I, I thought that was really, really cool. But then I thought, what if you're stuck taxiing? <laughs> around the circle. And you just go around the circle. Do people get dizzy? Well, that'd be interesting, man. Do, pe- do people... Where'd you say that? Um, it's the, it's it's a I guess the the test runway is in in um, in Holland. It's a it's a Dutch experiment, and I guess the U.S. military looked at it uh, in the past as well. But huh. well, that's, so, well, I didn't so it's a it. it's a nine kilometer circumference. You said right. That's pretty big. You'd have to be going really fast around that to get dizzy. Yeah, it's a big old wide. Yeah. Well, it, I, the- I, how fast do they go, have to go to take off? 
They're, you're over 100 miles an hour. I don't know what they are when they take off. I don't know. That's. I don't know. I just thought. I thought. I. I, I thought that was kind of cool. I thought. That is cool. And then, yeah. and then, and then, one of the comments on BBC's page was, you know, if it ever fails, yeah, it'd be just. A, it'd be a great uh, NASCAR, you know, kind of track. <laughs> <laughs> Multi-purpose. Oh, <laughs> so, so while I was looking at this, the, uh, the, another YouTube video popped up, and it was the most terrifying uh, airports in the world. Oh man, I've seen some of these. Most, most of them are in the Himalayas. Like where uh, they. Are barely making it over the mountain or whatever. Well, there, there was one in the um, there was one in in uh, the Alps that was uh, the runway was a third of a mile long and it goes off of a cliff. Oh, God. And it's downhill. It's a downhill slope. And so the air, airplane's going down an eighteen degree slope, comes to the end of the runway, and you just well, hope you have off. enough speed to um, catch some air. Was the Denver airport included on that list? Not you know, because the runway I, is so scary, but because of the crazy Holocaust-inspired murals and Illuminati the, theories. Yeah, the <laughs> Illuminati conspiracy theories. Yeah. I don't know if you've That's done a lot of reading on that, but it is stuff, fascinating. Yeah. It is I, crazy. I'll tell you what. Whenever I've been in the Denver airport, I've always been busy running from one end to the other yeah. of the terminal. And all that's I know how, is that there's a really bad Pizza Hut there. That's about it. That's how they keep that's, you from asking questions. It has the right. worst layout ever. So anytime you're there, you're frustrated and running, and then you don't ask any questions about the Illuminati stronghold in the basement. So, Craig, you're saying, <laughs> you're saying the truly the scariest thing about it is the Pizza Hut there, huh? Well, that's from my experience. <laughs> um, the Panda Express isn't bad, for future reference. That's good at to know. The, uh, at the Denver airport? At the Denver airport, nice. yeah. Nice. Yes, but yeah, I've read those things, the conspiracy theories. and the, oh, they're crazy. <laughs> that supposedly underground there's bunkers way down yep. deep or something. Yep. That's, well, if you think the, of, that's the headquarters for the New World Order. That's right. So if you think about these airports, that's a lot of construction. Yeah, there could be all kinds of stuff underneath oh, there. Oh, I'm sure there is. Yeah, yeah. they're probably old. But it, that just it, gets it, people thinking is what it does. In fact, this circular airport thing is, uh, they, they said that they're going to keep the runways uh, free of ice because the parking garage will be under there as well as other offices and buildings. And so the heat from the, oh. the other stuff going on will radiate upward and keep the, uh, the tarmac thawed. That's pretty cool. What kind of office can you possibly put <laughs> underneath a runway so that will have uh, here with... <laughs> I, I, work I, you know, I, I think you already mentioned what kind of office. It's the Illuminati the office. Illuminati of office. Of yes. I, I do think it. that would be rather ironic that the Illuminati, because I think that has something to do with light, yes. would be underground where underground. it's dark. Underground, yep. Illumination, yep. I love that. <laughs> well, <laughs> anyway, so all, there's all sorts of theories about what's under there. but That was something that I found that I thought was quite interesting, and I think it probably does link with Illuminati. You think it does? The round? Oh, it has to be a triangle or something. Uh-huh. No, yeah, I, yeah, but you know what a, cir- a circle and a triangle is just a matter of different points in geometry, right? <laughs> sure, yes. Let's go with that. I mean, if you add more points to the to the to the triangle it becomes a square. Yes. Then it becomes a pentagon yes. and a yes. septagon, so then the eventually octagon. It's basically circular. It's basically yeah. So they're they're just they're cousins. Or I got it. I know. I know. The stuff that they're going to build underneath, like, will decrease in width in terms of how wide the level is. So it actually will be a cone. 
Oh. So the circle is the base of the cone. So it is triangular. Oh. See? That's an upside down cone. Yeah. Oh. Oh, and down at the bottom of the cone, there's going to be a large ant lion that just eats everything that falls down the sides. <laughs> That's got to be a reference to something. <laughs> is that a reference to something? Not, not, not that I know of. It could be. Let's really? create one. <laughs> I thought well, you know what, it is. You know what yeah. an ant lion is, don't you? An ant lion. Yeah. Is that an ant the size of a lion? <laughs> well. That's what I'm it's, picturing. It's actually a bug that lives in the sand, digs a hole in the sand, and then whatever bug falls oh. over the top falls into the cone, and the lion at the bottom eats the bug. Ant lion. Oh, that's yeah. pretty brutal. Nature is brutal. Oh, big time. It is brutal. <sighs> that's why you know things like NHL and you know worldwide you know extreme wrestling, and that's yeah. nothing. That's no big deal. Nothing compared to the the viciousness of nature. Yeah, I mean. Just go watch a, a nature documentary. Oh yeah. Well, man, like those those yeah. shrimps. You know which ones I'm talking about? Those shrimp that have those like. Gonna need more detail than that. <laughs> <laughs> those shrimps. You know which ones? The, the right? ones with garlic and butter. No, no, no. There's like this type of shrimp that. Um, what do they call it? It's either a mantis shrimp or a. Oh, the super brightly colored ones. Yes. Yeah, I totally know. Those things are brutal. Ooh. Yes, they shoot but out this little. They're so pretty. They are. They're they are pretty cool. But yeah, they shoot out this the uh, whatever, like a, I don't know if it's an arm, a leg, whatever it is, but it shoots it out so fast that it actually creates this supersonic bubble <laughs> in the. Uh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And that bubble just bursts and kills everything. Like I mean, it can crack. Like they can crack some aquariums. With You're right. Mm-hmm. With glass. It's yeah. insane. Yeah. It's yeah, insane. they can kill an octopus. Yeah. They're it's insane. crazy. It's so brutal. Cool. Also, I was reading a thing that said that, like, the, the way that they process colors allows yeah. them to see so much more of the color spectrum than we oh, can. Insane. So they can see colors that we can't even fathom. How cool oh, is that? That's amazing. That is yeah. really cool. Oh. What are we missing out on? We, I, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, how could we even know? There's know. no way for us to know that. We wouldn't even know. That's insane. Yeah. That's good. That, like, so how, good. Okay, so how did, they, how did the researchers know that they are doing that then? Oh, man, I don't know. I read that article so long ago. I would have to find it again. Yeah, you'll have to, you'll have to watch the uh, uh, National Geographic documentary that I just posted on our chat there. So Ooh, I think a, I posted about it. About brutal yeah. death? Supersonic shrimp and ant lions. Yeah, there. they're both up there. So. Oh, man. <laughs> Excellent. Awesome. So, anyway, oh, how do we go I, from I'm so airport? glad that talking about a circular runway has led to such a fantastic conversation. Yeah, really? It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, uh, any other news items? Any, anybody else bring some good news? Interesting yeah, good news. news. I, I have, have the best good. news. Okay, let's hear it. This is a real departure from your airport runway. <laughs> but I've been, you know, I as a comedy writer, I've been really digging into this story this week. This is like the best story I've covered in 2017 so far. Mm. A, you know, the rapper Drake. Yes. Mm-hmm. A 24 year old woman broke into his house, uh. and all she did, she broke into his house. She drank all of the Pepsi <laughs> and Fiji water in his fridge, and then she put on his sweatshirt and laid in his bed. <laughs> Holy and that was it. cow. That, that was the awesome. whole thing. All she did. So who who found her? 
Um, actually, one of his staff did and called the police, and she tried to say that she had permission to be there, and obviously oh, she didn't. What's really sweet is that, like, she, she was charged with felony burglary, but then today, the update on this story is that Drake told the police to just drop all the charges. He was like, yeah, she just drank my Pepsi in Fiji water. It's not a big deal. Oh, man. <laughs> you know, that's because he's Canadian. <laughs> is that why? You know, no, they're, that, just, they're, they're just forgiving people. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what her excuse was, but I mean. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Who knows? Oh, wait. I yeah, so he's Canadian, but but she's from South Car- North Carolina. South Carolina, so. Doesn't he have, like, what? He doesn't have, like, security? For his house or anything? I guess or? not. Or, like, it's not very good <laughs> security? Who knows? Oh, man. I would think. He's got to be a wealthy guy. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I I think you would think that celebrities have, like, security patrolling their homes at all times, but I don't think that's necessarily the case because I don't know if you guys saw that big documentary a few years ago about the teenagers who were breaking into celebrities' houses and stealing their clothes and their jewelry. And in most of the cases, they would just walk in the front door. (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's, that's all they did. They would just walk in the front door. Somehow they figured out where celebrities lived. It was like Lindsay Lohan. They stole a bunch of her stuff and Audrina Patridge. And they would just walk in the front door and help themselves to whatever was in the closet. Oh, wow. So my, and, my hunch is it's somebody who's just being aware of what's going on and who's coming in and out of their neighborhood. In uh, right. Meridian here, uh, I guess it was probably a decade ago maybe, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger had a, had three homes in just a small little you know, middle class subdivision here. What? Yeah, so that and so when he would leave um Ketchum Sun Valley, leave his yeah. home there. Right. And to do some like shopping and work in Boise. Yeah. He stayed in a very low key environment in uh, uh in Meridian where nobody would expect him. Right. And I think it was he owned the homes on each side of the one that he lived in and that's where his <laughs> security and entourage and those people hung out. Oh man. And it, you know, so it had no oh. big you know display, hey, you know, movie star here. How did how did people find out eventually? Uh the way I found out it was from a friend who's a realtor. Oh, okay. Huh. Well, so. that, there you go. Well, that's kind of the way to do it, I would think, cuz I had no clue. Yeah, so maybe yeah. that maybe Drake has his Pepsi house somewhere. <laughs> I just stop here for Pepsi. This Not is... actually the house he lives in. It's just his Pepsi house. It's just his Pepsi hangout. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah, he goes there whenever he's feeling tense and, like, there's a, a riot going on and he just needs <laughs> to have a Pepsi and bring in world peace. Oh, <laughs> I hear that's what it does. I've yeah, heard rumors. There was, I thought there was even a... There was a documentary about it, but I guess there was it got, a documentary about it. It got pulled. Yeah. I think it got pulled. Yeah, I'm not uh, sure why. You know, because the man doesn't want you to know. <laughs> That's it. Pepsi would bring us all together. It's all it takes. Oh dear. <sighs> hmm. Well, on the celebrities who had their homes broken into and the clothes taken, taken. Yes. Do you think like? Was enough clothes taken that they noticed, or would it be like they took a few things and they didn't notice for a long time because they have so many clothes and stuff? You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I'm not sure. That's how yeah, I go about you know, it. It could be something very simple and subtle. It's like yeah. you know, Drake goes out to play basketball. It's like, where, where's my shoelace? 
Yeah. Yes, <laughs> one shoelace. One shoelace. That's true. If you had like a closet full of clothes exactly. and like one dress, you couldn't find it. You wouldn't immediately think someone broke into my house and took this dress. Right. Yeah. yeah. See, that's how that's I would go about doing it. That's tricky. Where'd I, mm-hmm. where'd I get this? Where'd I get this sundress? Oh wait, it used to have sleeves. Somebody stole my sleeves. <laughs> <laughs> what if they went in and exchanged clothes <laughs> <laughs> and then walked out with the? That would be awesome. That just seems really elaborate. <laughs> I, I like that one. Or, or what if you go in and you exchange all the food in the refrigerator? Yeah, yeah. Like, you just bring your leftovers. That you would know? be. Did we, when did we eat burritos? I don't. How long has this been here? That is what happens. That's how the mystery stuff ends up. Why in is our it fridge. in an old yogurt container? We don't. <laughs> we don't even eat this kind of yogurt. That'd that'd be be great. That's a good prank. That I know. Would be that would be. That's awesome. We're gonna do it. <laughs> if mystery food shows up in my fridge, I'll know who to blame. Okay. So I, I think the best way to go about this is uh, we don't do that, but you know we could just put a challenge out there for anybody listening that you Ooh, know yeah. exchange food in somebody else's refrigerator. Let us know how it goes. See if you well, can get away with it. Yeah. How long? I was yes, I was okay. listening to a podcast, um, and there's um somebody had somebody had uh, described a situation in which. Uh, a fellow on his way to work every morning would stop at a hotel, go in and get the free breakfast and free coffee, put it yes. in a cup, go to work. I, t- I totally thought about this on our way on a and trip so, recently. And so on this podcast, uh, they said, no, we we would never do that. That that might be construed as stealing or trespassing. <laughs> but if any of you... <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, so we they, would never do that. But... Yeah. And so they had people calling in talking about, well, they they haven't bought soap for years because they have to <laughs> go to the go to the cart and pick up the soap and shampoo bottles. And I did I did say that to Lisa though. We sat down for breakfast, you know, because we just walked in and we're sitting down and eating our breakfast. And I was like, what's to stop anybody right now from just walking in and just having breakfast, <laughs> like yeah. from off the street? Oh, no one's gonna probably no one would say anything or do anything. I definitely have thought about that. In yeah. some of my more dire college days, that, yeah, that thought exactly. crossed my mind for sure. Well, yeah. I, I think that's why the the more highbrow places that people, you know you can stay, you have to pay for breakfast. Well, right, yeah, because it's a little more. Yeah, you know, it, you know, if if you know La Quinta has somebody steal one of their waffles, I don't think it's going to be as big of a deal. <laughs> you know, Hilton has. I don't know. What are the top hotels? Hilton, right? That's still the good one, isn't it? That's a pretty right. good one, but it's okay. All right. It's still the chain, yeah. Four yeah, seasons. Here, yeah, there you go. There you go. But he, the the thing is, you know, I, I think I I think it's not a bad idea in some ways to go in and get some of the fruit because the bananas are almost always green, <laughs> and so you need to pocket that banana because you can't eat it for three or four days. Take it, take it for a while. Yeah, that's true. They always put out the green bananas. I don't, I just don't get that, and yeah. it's always delicious apples. Oh yeah, they are. When you, oh, you mean like red delicious? And yeah, red delicious. So like which, the worst apples, which are actually not delicious <laughs> at all. No. Yeah, so terrible. Okay, so is that a key about any item? If it says you know this is delicious, that means it's not. I mean, how you, how, how many other items yourself. are named I'm such think a of way? What other foods are self-proclaimed delicious? I can't yeah. even think of any. <laughs> They're the good ones. <laughs> that are. What do you mean? Well, I mean, if there's something called yummy grapes, they'd probably be lousy. 
Oh, yeah, gotcha. If there's something called, you know, stunning star fruit, it'd probably be the worst star fruit. So when it's a delicious apple, it's just not. Yeah. So. <laughs> like golden delicious. Yeah. Not that great. Yeah, it's it's it, but but the fact that it's golden, it's just a notch above the regular delicious. It is better than red delicious. That's yeah, that's it, true. it it got a gold star. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, well you guys both had some good news items. All I got is the filthy GOP trying to take away insurance benefits. <laughs> <laughs> No, 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 no. They're not filthy GOP taking away workers. They're delicious GOP. (laughs) (laughs) Taking away rotten benefits. That's right. Okay, no, that is one thing I had. But actually, no, really, what I was wanting to was like the the Facebook Live killer, man. What the? Oh, that's. Oh, yeah, that was. That was a wild few days. Yeah, that's insane. Like. But when it happened, though, didn't all of us, like, I knew I was like, oh, well, how has this not happened before? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like uh, with Facebook Live? Yeah. Yeah, like I'm, I don't know. I, I did kind of, that crossed my mind, you know. Yeah. Like, I wonder if it has, and maybe he just had more follow, mm-hmm. more followers, and so it was a bigger deal. You know what I mean? That's interesting. Mm-hmm. I know Facebook a while back was dealing with the, like, rash of Facebook Live suicides and yes, there was okay. a yep. huge public outcry for for Facebook to do something to stop people from being able to broadcast their suicides and I right. I don't remember how that shook out or if it did. Yeah, how could they prevent that? I think that the media frenzy kind of died down, but there were there were a bunch of them in a short period yeah. of time. And then there was the Facebook Live, uh, wasn't there a group of kids assaulting a right. Yes. Um um I think a disabled person, wasn't it? Right. Yeah, a young, uh, it was, yeah, yeah. Or, yeah, something, or a person with disabilities or something like that. Yeah, anyway. But, yeah, I guess this is the first murder, I suppose. I don't know. Well, I guess unless you count uh, um, Castile, his girlfriend. Of course, that was post after he'd been shot. You know, it's just, I... I think the thing that's kind of chilling about this one was the random act of violence piece to it. Yes, it was just no connection, seem right to the right. victim. Yeah, and that part's what chills me, man. You're right. Not not Facebook related, but similar random act of of, of uh, you know violence in the Portland area this last week. Have you heard about the you know somebody getting gasoline tossed on them? No. No. So it was a, earlier in the week at a movie theater, somebody had gasoline tossed on them, and I don't know if they ever caught the perpetrator. Um, but then you know nothing nothing happened beyond that. And then just last night at a at like a Denny's or something, um, there was a 67 year old man just you know by himself eating, and another fellow came in later. Not interacting at all, and this this uh, a younger guy came up to this sixty uh, seven year old gentleman, tossed um, gasoline on him, and threw a book of matches at him. And so the older man is in the hospital. the 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 the, uh, the younger guy got you know caught by the police, but just it had and they had no connection with each other. It was just a random, random. stranger. Um, it. 
It's just, it's just weird. That is weird. Uh, well, sorry to. Thanks, how thanks, about Cody, those for bringing us down? <laughs> yeah, how really. about those? How about those shrimp? Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Looking for some supersonic scampi. <laughs> complete complete change of gears. Um, yes. The the interview today. Yes. Like so the interview um, is is with um, Liza Long. Life. And Sorry. revolves around the conversations, uh, revolves around a conversation about mental health issues. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's in May is uh, National Mental Health Awareness Month. So I thought, you know, yes. this this would be a good interview to put out, um, you know, getting ready for that. Yep. And some of the things that Liza has done. Uh, you know, are largely in the area of advocacy work and uh, providing information for folks about what, what, um, you know, what are the mental health issues for, especially for parents who you know have to navigate this, you know, really difficult way of getting you know their 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 kids provided for. Um, Liza, Liza is somebody I used to work with. She and I taught together at, at Brown Mackey College, and then um, she ended up. You know, miss, I remember she she would miss days at work because she had to take care of her son who was going through, um, you know, some you know these difficulties of the onset of his mental health uh, disease, and uh, just just watching the wear and tear you know on her as a mm-hmm. friend because the only way in Idaho for her son to get the resources to access the resources was for him to go into the criminal justice system. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's similar in a number of places across the country. And and when I when I had met her, she had already left the LDS church. But like a lot of folks who are LDS or any particular religion that has a strong culture to it, a strong you know social culture, uh, you, know, you 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 can leave the beliefs, but you still carry the baggage. Mm-hmm. And and she tells a story in her book that is about. Um, uh, an LDS uh, mom in Utah, who because her child has has a uh, mental health disease of some sort, the the way that she's ostracized from the religious community because she's not does doesn't have have the, have the perfect family, and so you know Liza kind of struggled with those things as well, and those those feelings and being ostracized or feeling ostracized. Right. So the the interview we had covers you know a, a variety of things. Rather than an interview, I guess it's more of a conversation because it's just you know a couple of friends who hadn't seen each other for a while catching up. Uh, but she she um, wrote an article uh, after the shooting at um, uh, in, in in Connecticut yeah. the uh, with, yeah. with at the Sandy school Hook. Sandy Hook okay. and um, mm-hmm. she that that very weekend or that very day in fact her son with with um, you know with the mental health issue he has a form of pediatric uh, bipolar or pediatric onset bipolar uh, that very weekend he had had a, a violent um, uh, outburst and was spending time in, in jail and so she wrote an article about understanding what Adam Lanza's mother must have felt like and a friend of ours who we used to teach with uh, at the college, uh, who now was at uh, the editor of the Blue Review at, at Boise State, saw the blog that Liza had written mm. on her uh, blog page, the Anarchist Soccer Mom. I love the title. <laughs> um, he saw that and put it on the Blue Review, 
And then uh, the Blue Review, I guess, was getting uh, kind of pounded on their servers, and then Huffington Post picked it up, and it quickly, you know, within a, a day or two, it had like a million to three million, you know, hits. Uh, that got her, you know, the, the, the platform that she could tell her story, talk about her, her child's um, situation and needs, you know, got her onto Oprah and Dr. Phil and Dr. Oz and PBS on Frontline did a, did a special uh, piece about her and her family. Um, so it, it, she, she really was able to, to get some of the issues and the needs of, of families with uh, a mentally ill uh, family member, especially child, get that some national recognition. So our conversation covers some of those issues. Um, some of it's kind of lighthearted, some of it's pretty serious, and um, I think it, I think it was it was just a, a, a good conversation, hopefully informative as well. And on the on the blog page, we'll have information about her writings, her books, her website, things like that, so people can can link into that. So me- mental health stuff. I threw up that one article about um, oh Prince Edward Charles, whatever his name is. I don't follow yes. the royal family much, but and Lady Lady Gaga doing stuff on mental health yep. awareness. If we could do some Lady Gaga, Throw some there Lady Gaga go. in here this week. Heck yeah! You so. don't follow the royal family? Why? <laughs> A little thing called 1776. Uh, <laughs> oh. oh. <laughs> Fighting words. No, I, I don't know. I never really got into that. There's a lot of people who just get into the whole royal family thing. I love like, them. Like so a soap much. opera, you know? <laughs> they're classy. They're not a soap opera at all. What? <laughs> they may be classy, but I do think they're a soap opera. What? Well, let me put it this way. They, okay, they may be classy. They're a classy soap opera. They're more like an ABC rather than a CBS soap opera. Oh, I mean, General Hospital is classy. Um, this is silly. Yeah, as the world turned, that was just name one scandal that has come from the British royal family in the last decade. There oh, thank you for going decade. decade. Just just yeah. beyond <laughs> questions of Lady Di. You know what I mean? So yeah. Well, yeah, obviously that was that was a thing. <laughs> that was the biggest one. Well, you know, the, well, well, okay. Here's one. Here's a little soap opera thing. Okay. Why did the Queen only walk with? Three of her corgis and not all four last month. I oh man, I, maybe one of them is grounded. Uh, maybe yeah, it an could ant. be. It could be. I mean, is maybe it, an antlion got one. I mean, is it true or is it not true that one of her corgis actually ate a cat? Can you know, has, that, has that been denied? What? Has any dog ever actually eaten a cat? Well, well, I'm. <laughs> a, a corgi might. Oh. A corgi. <laughs> Slander. And this is how we create fake news. <laughs> so you're telling me the prince, the queen's corgi ate a cat. Oh, I didn't tell you anything. I just asked you're, the question. You're starting this rumor now that the queen's corgi ate someone's cat, and in like a week, my editors are going to be like, Christina, there's this rumor that the queen's corgi ate a cat, and I'm going to have to write an article about it, and I'm going to know. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Know where That'd be awesome from. to write an article and know the source <laughs> from which this rumor sprang. Because because the source is not me. I simply asked the question: Is it true? You're the ones who are you know kind of assuming it is. I don't know. That's silly. Anyway, means corgis are angels. All four of them. <laughs> it, it, but it, one well, 
<laughs> one might we don't know where the fourth Angel's one is. Maybe he was just feeling under the weather that day. That could be. As short well, as they are, they're always under Craig, is it is it true that she only walked with three or are you making that up too? Well, I won't say that I'm making up making it up, but I will tell you I have no way of knowing one way or the other. <laughs> so I cannot deny nor confirm the lack of truth. <laughs> Oh, man. You're going to make me Google. <laughs> so Queen's corgis. All right. <laughs> Hasn't she had, like, corgis, like, pretty much her whole dynasty, her reign, yeah, or whatever you call it? Yeah, she is the corgi's biggest fan for oh. 91 years. <laughs> the, oh. corgi, the corgi's biggest fan. Yes. Yep. All right. She loves her corgis. She does. I mean, they are they're, friendly. they're, they're little fluff balls. Little animals. My yeah. brother has a corgi, and he's never trained it, so it's actually kind of a jerk of a dog, but dang <laughs> it. So you're saying it might have eaten a cat. He wouldn't eat a cat, but he sure pees in the house. <laughs> does uh, what a corgi, man, I think a, a cat would whoop up on a corgi. I don't and know. they're not very big, and they're certainly not fierce. So Yeah. So, so you're saying you're saying that the queen's corgi, if this is true, is a particularly vicious corgi. I want us all to pause right now and try to paint a picture in our minds of a corgi viciously attacking something. <laughs> it's really funny. It, it nuzzled the cat to death. <laughs> now that it cuddled the cat. <laughs> yeah, that makes okay. sense. So in the show notes, we'll have to make sure we had an extended conversation about fake news and corgis. (laughs) Oh, my word. Fake news and the queen's corgis, to be exact. The queen's corgis. Yeah. Does she always have four? Is that the... Like in her whole reign? I wonder. I I, I know she's got a corgi. I don't know how many... She has very numbers of corgis. She has four right now, which is great, because when she takes the private royal airplane anywhere, her... Guards get off first with one corgi under each arm, and it's really funny. <laughs> That's awesome. See, there's so, so many Meanwhile, number, our president doesn't even have a pet. But the number of corgis vary. Is that what you just said? Yeah, she's had different numbers of corgis throughout her life. So, so could it be that the corgis are simply livestock? <laughs> she's got like hundreds of them, and she yeah, just, yeah. I mean, she has like she has a corgi herd. I suppose it's possible. And she plays if favorites I, with them and leaves if the, I had the others. To have a horde of corgis. Uh, oh my word! A herd of corgis. A horde of corgis. <laughs> if you are a hoarder of a herd of corgis, how many hordes would you corgis herd? Wait. Oh my land! This has gotten weird. Yeah, it is. So. I got guns in my head and they won't go Spirits in my head and they won't go I got guns in my head and they won't go Spirits in my head and they won't I've been looking at the stars tonight I'll be a dreamer till the day I die. But 
talking with uh, my friend Liza, Liza Long. Liza and I have known each other for nearly 10 years, Almost actually. 10 years. And uh, Liza and I worked together teaching several years ago. And uh, during that time, you went through lots of personal transformations uh, in your own personal life, uh, professionally, academically, and spiritually. That was a really dynamic time. And so I got to know Liza during this time of uh, incredible flux. Uh, after that, she kind of got into the national limelight with, a, with an essay she wrote on her blog where a, a mutual friend uh, gave some, um, uh, brought some awareness or attention to something she had written called I Am Adam Lanza's Mother mm -hmm. and uh, broke some servers in different places but launched another uh, kind of new trajectory, it seemed, of advocacy work. And so uh, on, the, on our website, you'll be able to see the link for the book, The Price of Silence, and um, go get it. But uh, we'll let Liza talk a little bit about herself and uh, some of the um, places she's been in the last 10 years. We want to talk about politics, mental health, mental health legislation and advocacy, uh, and some of your own personal spiritual uh, Thanks so much for having me on the program, Craig. I'm just thrilled to be here. And I think you left off that I'm a mom. Oh, yeah, very, very much a mom. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I'm a mom of four uh, really amazing kids. My second son had an undiagnosed mental illness for several years. He's now been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and is just kind of out rocking it himself as an advocate. He's 17 and um, in recovery, living very bravely. Uh, like so many people do with mental illness. So Now, when, when we initially met... <laughs> You, you spent uh, a lot of time having to take care of him, uh, leaving work, but it, was, it wasn't taking him to mental health care facilities or to a caregiver. It was generally it's like going to jail or going to uh, a principal's office. Say yeah. something about that. I think that had become one of my biggest frustrations, both as a mother, but then later that's what's informed my advocacy, is just the social justice issue of criminalizing criminalizing an illness, a brain, dis, a brain difference, um, and especially in children. The fact that we would criminalize an illness. You know, Imagine if you went to the doctor and she came in and said, I have bad news, you have cancer, and pulled out a pair of handcuffs. That, it's just <laughs> absurd to us, and yet this is exactly what we're doing with something that's neurological, it's biologically based. Um, unfortunately, there are behavioral symptoms, and I've, I've been very outspoken in talking specifically about the violence that is associated with untreated mental illness. This is a subject that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but the reality is that's what my family was living, um, and because my son had violent behaviors, as we do in our society, the only solution we had for him was, unfortunately, juvenile detention. So by the time he was 13, I think he had been in juvenile detention four times, and had been hospitalized when I wrote that essay, I'm Adam Lanza's mother, he was in the hospital for the third time. So it had been this almost 10 year cycle of um, multiple diagnoses, uh, multiple medications that didn't work, and then this cycling in and out of jail in the court system. Now, you mentioned when you wrote that essay <laughs> that he had actually, he, he was actually in the hospital at that time because yes. was it simply a day or two previous to mm -hmm. um, Sandy Hook that? He'd, yeah. had, he'd had some kind of... Exactly. Two days before, he had had a meltdown on the way to school. He had threatened to 
kill himself, which he would do fairly regularly. Uh, and I had I'd made a deal with him. If he said those words, we were going to the hospital. And he tried to run into oncoming traffic. So that morning of uh, Newtown, he'd been in the hospital for two days. And he was still very angry at me. He was threatening revenge. <laughs> you know, that's what he would do. It was part of a script, really. Right. People say, well, how did you deal with that? And, or how did my younger children deal with it? And uh, I'd say, oh, it, it's really scripted. We kind of know <laughs> exactly what he's going to say. There was always this part about my constitutional rights. And I'd be like, yeah, kid, you're a kid. You don't have any constitutional rights. So, you know, he'd just go through this whole thing. And, and this was part of the script. So I knew he was just still stuck in that script when he was talking about revenge and getting out and hurting me but I was hurt I had bruises all over my body from trying to keep this child who's getting bigger than me from running into traffic right. and it had taken three police officers I still remember the look of absolute horror on one of the police officers faces when my son said I wish I had a knife so I could just stab you in the gut and then you'd kill me and you know this was my family's reality just right. you know Idaho white middle-class privileged America and we were living with this very um, very strange thing that we just didn't know how to help um, him. He was suffering. And that morning in Sandy Hook, I'd just gotten off the phone with his social worker. I remember it so vividly. His social worker had called and said, you know, he's still really aggressive. I think we need to charge him with a crime so that we can get him services. <laughs> and you're shaking your head because <laughs> uh, people just didn't want to believe me when I wrote that. They didn't want to believe that this is the reality, that we've actually taken our children and we've said this is an acceptable thing as a society to charge them with crimes, to put them in jail, um, so they can get services. It's absurd. Now, one of the other challenges you have, I would think, is you, you mentioned four children. <laughs> yes. I mean, how, do you, how do you hold that household together when you have one child who, who has such significant needs? Um, it, 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 does it become the focus of attention and then to mm -hmm. the detriment of others? And, uh, yeah. Or how do you, I mean, yeah, I mean how, what, what was that experience like? Like any family that has a special needs child, whatever right. those special needs are, uh, the focus of your attention, both financially and in terms of time, becomes the sick child. Right. And so how did I manage it? I, I guess I could throw in the mix. I was a single mom through all this Oh, too. yeah, throw that in too, yes, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Not by choice either. And so, yeah, you mentioned at the beginning some of the very strange, um, it, that whole period is very surreal for me. I uh, yeah. thought my life was going down one track where I was going to be a Mormon mom and raise my children in Zion and, you know, die and I don't know whatever happens when you die when you're Mormon and you're with your husband forever and that was my whole plan and then right. it was just upended it just uh, and on top of that I had this child who was very sick and during the course of all of this I also ended up getting uh, sole custody both of him and his older brother and my ex-husband I continue to share and still continue to share our younger two but uh how do you do it you have very um kind compassionate loving children is how you do it yeah. And you know, even to this day, it's funny, my oldest was home for the weekend. I still remember vividly going from a National Honor Society meeting where my son was kind of this rock star. My oldest was right. this, this kid, you know, we call him the future president of Mars. He's hilarious. And uh, I went to jail from right, that, right, right. you know. And I'm like, so I'm this great mom over here. But over here, because my kid's involved in juvenile detention, I have to take court-ordered parenting classes. I have to do all this stuff, you know. And then my younger two, frankly, uh, the question of whether they were safe is a legitimate one. And right. we had a safety plan like every family must. Um, I realized fairly early on that for all of my children's safety, I needed to partner with Child Protective Services, not see them as an adversary, but see them as a resource. And I, I recommend this to other families as well. If you are struggling with violent behaviors in the home, 
you have to consider the safety of your entire family. Right. Um, and you can't really hide, right? right? right. I mean, you, you can't hide this. So we had partnered with them. They, were, they helped to draft the safety plan. Um, but the real tragedy is that even despite all of that, I still lost my younger two for almost a year as a result of writing that, that blog post. Right. So when I spoke out, I was There punished. were consequences, right? Very harsh consequences. You know, it just, it just as an aside, uh, it would seem as if we live in a very small, like, rural community with only a few hundred people. Because not only did you and I work together... But your two younger children were, your were taught by my, by my wife. By yeah. It is uh, a small community. Yeah. Well, and our mutual friend is the one who made the piece go viral. I mean, that's right, you know, yeah. It's like, strange. It's, yeah. It is odd. You know? uh, but it's not, it's not as if it's that small of a town. But that's just kind of interesting, the intersection of lives there. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, now, now you, in, a, in, a, in a few minutes, how did that piece go viral that just launched, you know, who even knows? Because I mean, you weren't really even, were, were you even <laughs> contemplating moving in that trajectory no. of advocacy? No, I um, I, re- I became an advocate because of my decision to put my name on that story. Right. Uh, and that was a very complicated thing. I think people don't understand. I remember in the immediate reaction to the piece, people were like, well, she should have written anonymously. Right. I did. <laughs> That's not <laughs> been my whole MO. I think you knew about my blog. Yeah. Nate knew about my blog. Right. A few people knew right. that I was behind the anarchist yes. soccer mom, but very right. few. It was, was maybe five. Such a catchy title, by the way. Well, you know, that was born. I actually was one of the early mommy bloggers that came out in 2007 when my marriage and my faith and everything was blowing up. I was like, well, gosh darn it. And it it actually goes to a a rock song that I wrote that I've never recorded. But that was the title of the song, The Anarchist Soccer Mom. I'm like, that'd be a great blog. But I was very anonymous. I wasn't writing about these things. And I still didn't use my son's real name. Well, you were writing about everything. Yeah, I was writing about a lot of things. Right. Yeah, but definitely about increasingly about mental illness and about parenting a child with mental illness. And, um, and it, again, very, just very few people knew my identity. And so, <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> that's a really cool sound. But, uh, but yeah, that, that how I moved into advocacy was because uh, it was when Nate Hoffman called and said, I want the piece for Liberal Review for Boise State's right. online journal. I said, sure, yeah, you can publish it and go somewhere you want you to put your name on it. Right. And uh, we had a very powerful conversation that I still remember and he told me you know until people are willing to put their names on stories like this they're not real it's just somebody else over here um, and I that just struck me I thought you know you're right um, that being said I I'm not sure I would have done it again the consequences I mentioned I don't think it was worth it to lose my kids um, People always seem to want to go viral. Going viral for uh, having a son who's violent and has mental health issues is not a fun way to go viral. No, <laughs> it's not. No, you know, uh, everyone in the world has got some theories about right. about why your child has those issues, and most of them center on you as the mother, right. because that's just what our society is super good at. We've been really good at blaming moms for a long time. So, <laughs> so. speaking of blaming moms, we were talking yeah. about the story earlier that you talk about or you write about in the book mm-hmm. Price of Silence, and right. you mentioned. A, a mom and the consequences of her life and the things she goes through. Right. Can you say something about her story? Yeah, sure. This is Pam Kazmaier, and I actually knew of Pam from uh, the Mormon world because of a, a powerful essay she'd written about um, spirituality and being Mormon um, in Chicken Soup for the Mormon Soul. So, you know, they have the oh, Chicken okay. Soup series. There's yeah, one for right. Mormons. I didn't know they had their own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's the title. I don't think it's an knockoff, but it was one right. of the Chicken Soup series. And I had read that uh, that essay, I think, in 2006, and I was still um, firmly entrenched in the Mormon church, but definitely also dealing with my son's issues. Um, and, and it was just a very, you know, very positive, uplifting essay. Well, flash forward, <laughs> when I was researching my book, I 
discovered Pam's story had taken a turn that in some ways mirrored where my story was going. Mm -hmm. So uh, Pam published a, a very different essay about losing her faith and how uh, that all came about. And it, it had this, still, it's hard to talk about just how powerful this moment is as her son is living with mental illness. Mm -hmm. And the church um, does not embrace her, does not embrace that condition. She becomes a stranger in her own community. And I think that that Mormon experience of building a very inclusive community might resonate with a lot of people. I think a lot of, especially evangelical churches, can do that kind of, right. you know, coming around you, wrapping around you, and giving you this whole community where all your needs are met, from right. spiritual to social. It's right. all just right there. Um, Mormonism does that. But Pam felt herself rejected from that community. No, passively rejected or actively, actively. pushed out? Actively. What, what, what was that? Uh, so, like, her bishop, because her son was disruptive, basically said, you know, I think it'd be better if you all just learned the gospel at home. <laughs> it, that I could relate. I could right. relate to this experience. And and the culmination of it is that uh, her son talked her into a joint suicide pact right. one day. And so they, uh, while her husband was out home teaching for the church, um, they t took an overdose of pills together. And uh, they fortunately both survived. But the repercussions of that were just devastating for her. She was charged with, I think, second degree attempted murder with her child and you know she ended up doing time in prison and right. um, but it also uh, really shook her into a new sense of awareness and and, and life really right. you know today she has she lives on her own her son still lives with her um, as often happens with adult children with mental illness and um, but she's found a, a new life a new cause so she did manage to come out of that she did not keep her faith intact as you might well, imagine I, I, right because the faith for, for so many uh, faith traditions whatever the belief system is, is also wrapped in that community. Right. And when yeah. the community rejects you, yeah. the, the, the beliefs, even if they're intellectual assent, seem to, seem to right. get there still there. They just don't matter. I think um, Mormonism has a particularly pernicious, I'll go ahead and say it, I, a particularly pernicious uh, approach to this in uh, its toxic perfectionism, which is especially, I would say, aimed at moms, right? Really? <laughs> so okay. there's this idea that um, if you are righteous, you are happy. And if you are righteous, your children are awesome. Right. And if, if there's any kind of crack in the veneer or any kind of um, difference in that narrative, it must be because you are not righteous. Right. So being excluded <laughs> from the community wasn't just because you have a disruptive child. It's because you are evidence of sin. You, right. Your unhappiness, your child's unhappiness is evidence of sin. And I will say in defense of the church... Uh, you know, the, some of the leaders have come out and, and rejected this notion. But you and I both know there's church teachings and then there's church culture. And, and, right? and, and they both are in flux all yeah, the time. Yeah, and I would say, even to this day, church culture is very unforgiving right. for things that don't meet the norms because, again, there's this idea of be therefore perfect, uh, you know, and if if you are living righteously, that there's going to be evidence of that. In fact, that one's in the lectionary this upcoming week. <laughs> be perfect, because your heavenly father is perfect. There you, you go. Know, well, so Mormonism like, takes that to a whole new level. Whole, uh, <laughs> it's like like a level that I just, you know, now that I've, I've kind of shifted my theological views on Catholic, I just assume I'm a sinner, no big deal. <laughs> right? It's NBD, man. <laughs> like, God so, loves me so, anyway. So you 
Catholicism <laughs> help you embrace that without the guilt? So no not, guilt, yeah. Not, so that's the yeah. last Catholic part. <laughs> right. Well, I know plenty of Catholics have lots of guilt, but when you come from Mormonism, the guilt ratio is just so much it's lower. lower. <laughs> yeah. Just somebody because, just turned that down. Yeah, no, because you know God's out there. When you're, you know, when you're ready for Him, He's there and like, yeah, whatever you're doing at that's, the time. It's, that's an interesting shift of focus. You're gonna have to repent anyway, so why? <laughs> So, so I mean, there, there's church culture rejection. I mean, that's mm-hmm. one that and it has significant consequences. I mean, the story of Pam is is heartbreaking. Yeah. Uh, but all too familiar. But there's also outside the church world, just culture in general, mm-hmm. the, the struggling with schools getting adequate sure. you know, education, you know, for children with special needs uh, yeah. of, of any variety. Which has become an even bigger issue with our right. new Secretary of Education, who did not even know what the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act was. Yeah, so a lot of us cringed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so where where do things like that stand? I mean, for, yeah. in the in, in the previous years, you were uh, and you have, and I'm sure you're continuing to mm-hmm. do advocacy work for specific legislation, sure, for mental health care and other issues. Where does that stand going forward? So here's the challenge. Here's the overwhelming challenge. If I, if you didn't know anything about mental illness, and if I asked you, I asked my students this because I find it interesting. I said, "Gosh, if you are in mental health crisis, where will you go? What would your immediate response be? I'll go to the hospital, right? That's what we. That's just what we're, we think. We're sick. We go to the hospital, right? And most people think that. They're like, oh yeah, if I, you know, I'm in mental health crisis, I'll go to the hospital. It doesn't exist. And people don't know that. So, like, even with my son, people would say, well, why don't you just send him to a psychiatric hospital? Why don't you send him for long-term residential care? And a lot of us moms of kids, we laugh. We secretly call that place Candyland. We're like, oh, yeah, let's just send our kids to Candyland because it doesn't exist. And people don't know that. They don't know that there's not a place you can send your child to get well. Um, And then if you can find such a place, it may be, as I wrote in my book, um, unlicensed and unregulated, which scares the heck out of me as a mom. You know, so we're talking about therapeutic boot camp, for example. And it's going to cost you more than Harvard does. Yeah, say a little bit about therapeutic boot camp. Well, they're not all bad, honestly. I mean, they're not all bad, but they're not licensed and they're not regulated. So they're not accountable and they're also don't have a uniform set of standards. Exactly. And you're taking a tremendous risk. I mean, I've I've known some positive outcomes from therapeutic boot camps. I have. And uh, there's one here. It's it's ironically run by some Mormons. It, I think, does a pretty good job of really providing some stability and structure. Kids need stability and structure. All kids do. Definitely when they're living with um, mental illness, they do. But that, that being said, there's not... You know, this medical standard that we would expect, say, for cancer, you know, or for another illness, there's not that level. And, uh, you know, in Idaho, you'd have to send your child out of state. If you could even get approved for residential care, which would be really rough, you'll have to send your child out of state. And what we see a lot of families do is literally bankrupt themselves trying to get care for their kids. So in Idaho, you'd have to send your child out of state. I mean, how many other states are similar? With Many, many states are similar. Alabama has no state mental hospitals at all. None. Um, and so uh, one of the groups that I've worked with, and whenever people are curious about this issue, I send them there is Treatment Advocacy Center. That's a national group. And their hashtag is a bed instead, which is <laughs> excellent hashtag. Instead of a <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Wow. Um, and so there are organizations that exist that are really promoting this, but there's tremendous pushback. And I would say that dialogue, that pushback dialogue is important because it, of course, centers around patient rights and autonomy right. to self-directed care. And the gold standard with any illness would be self-directed care. Right. But what we, the challenge that we find, um, again, is that people sometimes lack insight. 
You know? Right, right. I, I reject the notion that the brain is any different from any other organ and cannot have dysfunction. I reject that notion. I know that's out there. But perhaps you've had experiences in your life that make you think <laughs> yeah. that's entirely likely. But the brain is an existential <laughs> exactly. organ. Right, so right. so the information that our brain is giving us creates our reality. The world around us. Yeah. I, and you know, we're, we're, I'm not just talking about alternative facts here. I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, that's just the way the brain works. The way the brain so, works. Yeah. so we have that extra level of, um, I don't know, I don't know what you did. The technical term is anisognosia, where you don't, you're not aware okay. um, that you're ill, right, right? Right. And so you absolutely have the right right now under our current laws if you are floridly psychotic to reject treatment. That's your right. Right. And I wonder, don't shouldn't we maybe have a right to treatment? Shouldn't we have some kind of uh, balance so, with that? But then, Craig, you wouldn't want. I, I can just see Carlo doing this. You, I mean, the the pushback is well, you wouldn't want Carlo saying Craig's crazy. I need to lock him up. <laughs> if they gave me a place you know? with plenty of books, I might be okay. No. <laughs> All of us, right? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, seriously, yeah. You, I mean, you want that in, independent. There has to be a balance. Ability, right? Yeah, no, there has to be a balance. I mean, self determination should always be the standard. But at the same time, when people are getting sent to jail instead right. of getting treatment, right. we've got a real problem in our society. And the number of people who are in federal prisons, for instance. Yeah, 20, who, 20 Well, not just federal. So to, the statistics are really. Shocking. Like, I talk about stigma in my book, right. and we talked a little bit about that. But the more I've been involved in advocacy, the more I'm convinced that while stigma may be a problem, the actual term, the actual word we should use is discrimination. That is the actual problem. Okay. Right. Like, stigma, sure, right. whatever. Right. But discrimination is the real problem. And even in doing my dissertation research, um, I was shocked, quite frankly, to discover that people now do understand to a large degree that brain issues that these illnesses are physical in nature, right. that they're not made up or whatever. So that they do understand, and you'd think that'd be good news and that would reduce stigma. And in fact, it's increased stigma. <laughs> it has increased the desire for social distance. Because stigma, I mean, it, it, it's Latin simply means a, a sign. A, a sign stigma. or a mark. Right, yeah. so now it's more... Yeah. Easily, uh, you can discriminate more easily because the mark is more. Well, what, what it translates to is I, I learned that schizophrenia is something that's biological. I learned that. Right. And then my view of schizophrenia becomes even worse. I want to know someone with schizophrenia even less. And I'm just speaking I hypothetically. I actually know lots of people living with schizophrenia who are amazing. Disclaimer, <laughs> disclaimer. Yeah, 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 but that's the way that this model works, right. right? Like we get these ideas in our head. So it's true that people now understand it's an illness. They now understand it's biologically based. And instead of making that want us, you know, to welcome and, and embrace right. people, we're treating it like a modern day leprosy. It becomes oh. a, it becomes a filter to push filter over out there. people. Right. Yeah, right. let's push them over there. And it's not like our society is sending us any messages to the contrary. Like there's right. there's even a movie that just came out. I don't even know what it is, but M Night Shyamalan's most recent movie is about a violent person with untreated mental illness. Right. And you know why aren't we telling? the stories of recovery and hope, why aren't we telling Eric's story? You know, or right. like tons of people like uh, Eric who live in recovery. Story of the Princeton <laughs> economist, mathematician. Precisely. Uh, uh, yeah, Beautiful Mind, beautiful John Nash. Mind. Right. Yeah, right. why aren't we telling more of those stories? Right. But if you really look at it, the media continues to feed us these stories so of violence. Eric needs to watch out for a screenplay coming up with where he's <laughs> the lead character, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I mean, Eric is, he's a funny guy, but he's, yeah. He will always uh, face stigma because he is very open about living right. with mental illness, and he just will. Now, and that's an interesting part of it's. It's not just your pilgrimage; it's been a shared experience. Because initially, you yeah. kept your son's name out of 
um, the stories. Yeah. And then, uh, then he or you or however you work that out welcomed making his name available to people. How, how'd that go? What was that like? And then, not only that, but then the two of you went speaking together and, and doing... Yeah, I freaked out about his decision, to be honest. Yeah. I freaked out. And I think part of the reason I freaked out is because I had seen just how much discrimination existed. Right, right. You know, we were talking, I didn't give the horrific prison statistics. I have to circle back to right. that because when if we want to see if there's discrimination, you had asked about federal prisons. Right. Well, we know that 4% of the population lives with schizophrenia, bipolar, major depression, so we call serious mental illness. It's 21% of all jails and prison populations. That is, on its face, discrimination. There's nothing else we can call it. Right. You know? Adequate care means keeping people out of jail. Well, uh, right. And uh, people also have this, uh, you know, this all ties back to Eric's journey. People have this misconception because the nation's largest mental health treatment centers are at Rikers Island, Cook County Jail, Los Angeles County Jail. People think, oh, well, at least if they go to jail, they're getting treatment. And nothing could be further from the truth. Even though those are the largest mental health treatment facilities, they are nowhere near adequate to well, address the needs of Even if they were population. getting treatment for a mental health yeah. issue, the whole environment is not one to create stability and I mean, just to live in a... Oh, it's the, the worst yes. possible. The worst possible environment. It's not a therapeutic environment. <laughs> You're exactly right. It's, and it's horrifying that we do this. You know, it's cruel. And, and to make matters even worse, in many cases, because these behaviors can be exacerbated, obviously, by the lack of a therapeutic environment, our solution then is solitary, which is even worse. So you can take someone with a serious mental illness, stick them in solitary, and add, throw on PTSD and a whole other host of conditions onto their already serious conditions just by those actions. And then we, that we really do create situations where it's, not impossible. I don't believe recovery is ever impossible, but much harder to you just, achieve recovery. You push somebody further and further and further away from yeah. the starting line. Right. It, we use it, the cancer so analogy a lot. We say, you know, why can't we get treatment before stage four? And what other illness would we say, well, you just need to hit rock bottom and then we'll throw you a few crumbs. <laughs> but we do that. And we do it with addiction right. too. You know, right. it's, it's just this very interesting model where we assume people are making choices because we see behaviors. Wow. And we just yeah. don't understand. Right. But then that gets into free will and determinism, which which I've decided is my job to spend my entire life thinking about free will and determinism. But no, but with Eric, when he made that decision, um, though it came about because of TEDx here in Boise. Right, right. So I had given a TEDx San Antonio talk in 2013. And TED is a, it's hard. <laughs> I enjoy watching TED Talks as much as the next person, but basically it's you on a red circle with no notes go, right? right. You do public speaking. I do a lot of public speaking. That's about as hard as it gets. But they, they, <laughs> you know? they, they, they do coach you. They don't just well, throw do. you out there. Yeah, right. they do. They absolutely coach you, but <laughs> it's not like it's still not terrifying, right? I remember right. when I gave my TED Talk beforehand, I was doing yoga sun salutations to calm down, like literally to calm down my, you know, to kick in my parasympathetic. And I thought, if I do just like 75% of my best talk, I'll be okay. And I, frankly, I walked in and I did 100% of my best talk and knocked out well. of the park. Yeah, and I felt really good with that. But then um, the TEDx Boise had contacted me and asked if I wanted to do it. I was like, nope, <laughs> not really. <laughs> so, and I do, I speak all over the, the nation now, which is a different experience. Right. I just, I didn't really, I mean, TEDx was fantastic. I wasn't interested in repeating that experience. <laughs> Bucket list, check. <laughs> so then they said, well, what about, what about Eric? Um, because the person who contacted me knew, and I was like, oh, mm, mm. Yeah. 
I don't know. Now, how old is Eric at this time? He's 16. Okay. Yeah. I'm like, oh, I don't know about that. But he was pretty vocal. I mean, he'd already gotten a youth advocacy award. He works with Youth Moves, which is uh, for kids, for teenagers who are living with mental illness. And he also actually sits on uh, the intergovernmental agency that's helping to plan the future of children's mental health in Idaho. So he's doing a lot with advocacy. (laughs) And I thought, he's actually a more interesting speaker on this topic than me. But um, but yeah, he said he wanted to do it. And I was like, okay. Kind of had the same conversation that Nate Hoffman and I had about my decision to put my name on the story. I was like, well, your name will be on this. And he's so funny. He goes, oh, I can just change my name when I meet you. <laughs> <laughs> just like touche. <laughs> you know? But uh, yeah, and he did. He just gave right. an amazing performance. Right. Just getting up there and just talking from his perspective about how hard that was to be afraid of himself right. and to see all the people around him um, being afraid Um, but for me that was a journey in radical love I think I wrote about that in my book too you know parenting's hard it's hard you have you've got kids too you know it's hard some days where you're just like okay but (laughs) but boy if you've got a kid who um, who hits you you know who's violent toward you and you still love that kid unconditionally you learn some very powerful lessons about love I think going through that that journey, and uh, I would say Eric and I have a great relationship. I, he's a dream teenager. Like now, now you, you, that's that's where he is now. But yeah, I mean, another part of the story was his, I guess, transformation over the last several years was unique. Mm-hmm. You wish it was this really for for everyone. Yeah, but because of the blog, because of the, right. the notoriety, because of the awareness. Yeah. You you ended up, be, you know, somebody became aware of the need and you ended up getting Yeah, the, the world's foremost uh, expert in bipolar disorder contacted me in right. juvenile bipolar disorder. And I we we'd had so many diagnoses, but not that one. Right. And uh, interestingly, at the roughly the same time that I was working with Dr. Papalos, um, Eric was hospitalized again. It was his last hospitalization. And they diagnosed him with bipolar disorder. He was 13. He started taking lithium. We still went back and, and met with Dr. Papolos because that was like a Rosetta Stone to my child. Right. When he told me all the things that he had been seeing um, in these kids and even simple things like taking, um, like like having a fan by Eric's head. Like Dr. Papolos really sees this as a thermal regulation issue. He really does, wow. which is strange. You know, you just like the, the part of the brain that should regulate temperature doesn't work in these kiddos and that leads to a whole host of issues. Specifically, and this will blow your mind, because Eric had always had night terrors. He'd always been a hot child, horrific nightmares. And apparently what these kids do is they encode those nightmares as actual memories. So they are always in fight or flight. <laughs> you know? That's heartbreaking. It's so heartbreaking. And it's so heartbreaking that it was such an easy solution. And lithium as a mood stabilizer works right. great for Eric. And know? so since, since then, he's... Yeah. I can't say smooth sailing. I think anyone who... Uh, lives with something like bipolar disorder knows that it's not just going to be a pill and that's I think that's an important message Uh, medication can be an important component in the treatment but really it's relied a lot on Eric uh, getting daily exercise his sleep hygiene is really good he watches his diet very carefully and he's really learned to kind of do mood checks with himself so he's good at assessing his triggers and calming himself down, learning how to regulate, because he's got this whole toolkit now. Wow. So, and and it, he's not unique in that, as I've gotten to know more people living with serious mental illness, whether it's schizophrenia or, or bipolar or major depression, people um, develop coping strategies that are 
good ones right. instead of their previous maladaptive coping right. strategies, right. which was punch a hole in the wall and like run into traffic. And, <laughs> you know? there, there's so many areas in which our awareness of, of how to uh, create environments for those coping strategies. Mm-hmm. You know, what's it like at a grocery store? What's it like at a oh, movie theater? What's yeah. it like in a classroom? A sensory swamp is yeah. the way that Eric's described it to me. And when I've talked to other um, clinicians about this issue and researchers, that's exactly right. Like, uh, that's why, in some ways, this particular juvenile bipolar does probably bear a lot of similarities to autism spectrum disorders. Mm-hmm. So, and Eric had that diagnosis a few times. So, um, yeah, the brain is just maybe processing too much information, and <laughs> people shut down. You know, and Eric, and Eric does have sensory processing disorder as well. So, it's, he's not fixed. It's not. I mean, he doesn't need to be fixed, but he can manage. <laughs> Yeah. It's it, it, it is remarkable just to hear about his transformation. Yeah. Oh, he's um, just great. He's yeah. a great kid. Wow. I mean, yeah, I, I joke with him a lot because, you know, teenage years can be rough, right? right. <laughs> and for him, I had rough years before that. He's been just just an amazing teenager. Just, you know, the kid who gets good grades, turns in all his homework, does the dishes every night. <laughs> just really good kid. Doesn't fight with me. <laughs> Wonderful. I, mean, I like, know. <laughs> yeah, it's great to be able to tell that different story. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I tell him he owes me. <laughs> like, wow. After those ten years of childhood, that just about so, did me in. So what, one of the, one of the other things to, to talk about. I mean, just where you where have you gone over these last ten years? I remember, wow. you know, working with you. A lot of crisis, but also besides the crisis, was this transformation or this this move from LDS <laughs> mom, yeah. who also teaches to. I'm a teacher who's, a, you know, I mean, the, the, you fully embraced being a professor, I think, at that period of time. I, yeah, and, well, I'm right back there. Right. I teach at College of Western Idaho full-time now, and I think uh, after some stints in administration with other schools, I am very much belong in the classroom. Right. So I'm very happy. And, and along with that professional transformation goes yeah. a spiritual one. So you went from LDS to... To whatever I so, yeah. So, yeah, where are you? Yeah, I mean, how would you describe I that? I would describe myself as a Catholic who hangs out with Unitarians. Because? <laughs> because I love the Unitarian <laughs> community. And, I, and I've been hanging out with the Unitarians for a few years, but, um, you know, mainly because they were the same people showing up at all the protests. I was like, who are these people look familiar? They're always at the same protests for human rights right. issues, for social justice issues. Right. I mean, Unitarians show up for these guys. Well, that was the other transformation, <laughs> your political one. I mean, you're still a libertarian, I believe, at heart, but yeah. you've gotten more progressive on social issues, I think. Very much more. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because my husband and I talk about this a lot. You know my husband, too, because we all work together. Yeah. But Ed, Ed's very, very liberal Democrat, and I just can't go there. <laughs> I just can't. It's not my, you know, big government's not my solution. But at the same time, you're exactly right. My, I have become a single-issue voter. Bad, which, bad government isn't a solution either. Precisely. <laughs> and I've become a single-issue voter to the point where if, you, if you're not on board with social justice, uh, that's not... It's not my party. Right. So, um, and you bring that up. It's interesting. We partnered. The Republicans actually led the way nationally on right. comprehensive mental health care reform. Right. Wasn't it uh, to Representative Tim Murphy? Right, right. Yeah. Well, there were two Murphy bills. There was Senator Murphy's bill, Chris Murphy. This truly is a bipartisan issue. I think that's what mental health shows is that it's truly a bipartisan right. issue. But it was one of the last bills President Obama signed, uh, the 21st Century Cures Act, 
legislation that I had testified to Congress about uh, finally made its way in. And so it's not everything, I love, how did Representative Murphy say it? It's like, not everything we need. We didn't get everything we need, but we need everything we got. Right. <laughs> and I thought, touche, that's politics, right? And, and in many ways, a foot in the door, hopefully. Yeah, well, what it does is it kind of elevates the way that mental illness is treated. So there'll be a new position in Assistant Secretary of Mental Health who will report to the National Health Director, National Institute of Health Director. And I think just even that shift right. from um, this, we've had things over with SAMHSA where serious mental illness has been lumped with a lot of other things. And I think this is an important distinction that, you know, mental health is important to all of us. Right. Definitely important. Right. So I'm not downplaying the need for all of us to do the things we need to do for mental health. But when we're, you're looking at schizophrenia, bipolar, major depression, you're talking about something else right. from just, um, you know, frankly, my own experiences with the mental health care system. They've been fantastic. If anyone had told me before I had Eric that mental health care system was broken, I would have laughed. I would have said, well, gosh, I had a period of depression in college, and, you know, my roommates called me in, and I went to the college center, got in to see a psychiatrist in three days, took a medication that worked great, and, you know, a few months later, I was able to go off the meds, and I felt great. Right. It works. Right, right. <laughs> you know? And it does. It actually works remarkably well for people like me, you right. know? Or, or even before, I'll admit this, before the election, I had was worried. Um, I went into my doctor the week before the election, and I said, I need a PRN Xanax, <laughs> which is a horrible thing to admit. I know, but I did. I, I just, I've struggled with anxiety in the past, and I said, I just I don't want to be on daily meds right now. I think I've got this, which, again, I have no shame with daily meds. If I need to be on daily meds, you guys used to joke about that when we worked together. If I need to be on daily medication, I'll take it. But I, don't, you but, know, but I was like, I just need, you know, I can't lose it. <laughs> <laughs> just in case. So, well, gee, was there something in the election that made you think you might get yeah, anxious? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of anxiety <laughs> about the election. Oh, but that's behind us now. Everything smooth sailing. Yeah, no, no. We've got. Oh. We, you know, the great thing about that, and even Ed finally said that when he stopped crying. <laughs> I finally told him, I was like, "You are a white man. <laughs> Stop crying. Get out and start protesting." I think we've seen energy within all advocacy communities that we just have not seen in this country in a long time. The level of energy, the engagement, the fact that we've all become constitutional scholars, all of this is good for America. Uh, my, my hunch is I, I, I wonder if some of it's been motivated uh, by a healthy sense of shame. Like, mm. I wish I should have yeah. been engaged earlier well, but, but, I, you know, I, I woke up very disappointed. I'll admit it. I, I wanted Hillary Clinton to be president in 1992. So that goes, you know, way back. I, I was in college when she and her husband ran. And I was like, I don't like that guy that much. But his wife, he, she is awesome. So <laughs> it was really devastating for me for a lot of women my age who were right. ready to see not only a woman president, but I think just a very well qualified president in general, just somebody who is really prepared for that role. Right. Um, that being said, I, I do think if Hillary um, had won the rigged election, since she won the popular vote, we all know, um, we wouldn't see this kind of energy. We would we would be continuing to see the same kind of just, yeah. you know, uh, two-party, what do you call it, gridlock, right. that just was going nowhere. And now we've got one party who's clearly to blame. So I, we know right where to put the blame. And, and in some ways, this is a place <laughs> where some of that uh, adversarial energy mm -hmm. is enlivening and probably good for us. Well, I joke. It, it's a great Hegelian dialectic, <laughs> isn't it? It is. Well, I joked with someone the next day. I was like, oh, mental health advocates are uniquely positioned for this moment because we are so loose to being, we're used to fighting for marginalized populations, so used to it, and we're used to losing. So We are used it, to losing. Is 
Is legislation for mental health care enough separate from Obamacare that if Obamacare oh, no. fades away? No, the Affordable Care Act, uh, the loss of it will be devastating to the mental okay. health community. Okay. Devastating, and that can't be um, that can't be stressed enough. That is honestly my top priority right now in advocacy. Is you know if you're going to repeal something, you darn well better have something in place. Uh, this is a whole population of people right. that finally had access to treatment, right. um, and in Idaho. Uh, that it didn't play out that way. We fought so hard to expand Medicaid here. People, people just have strange notions of the way this works. Um, I think people probably don't know how it works until they have to rely on it. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, I hear that a lot. Well, you know, I work hard, and so and I'm like, yeah, this is just not what we're talking about. You know, this, these are because we talked about stigma. These are not visible illnesses, and so people are really quick to judge. And to say, well, you know, that person over there, my neighbor who doesn't go to work, should be working. You just don't know what people are going through. And so um, where we're really going to be in an interesting position in Idaho, and I think even our legislators understand this now, is that if we don't somehow expand Medicaid, we need to somehow expand it. Uh, If they do go to a block grant system, Idaho is, I won't use the word, (laughs) but they'll... They'll, they'll do that funding based on current levels. And let's just say Idaho's level will be low compared to other states. And I think people are finally seeing the writing on the wall with that. That, oh, if it does go to a block grant system, which it just very well may, we are in big trouble in the state. Yeah, and and leave it to other states to write news about us. It was the Denver Post that had a great article last week about that. You know, if you want to know what's going on in Idaho, read the Spokesman Review or the Denver Post, I guess. I had a friend, oh, I had a friend post something on my page the other day, and she said, is this true about Idaho? Yeah, news about, it was the one about the climate change, that they wrote oh. climate change out of the curriculum. She goes, is this true? It's like, this isn't fake news. I was like, no, no, that's true. So that's, those are priorities. Yeah, that being said, because I spend a lot of time down at the State House, I think there are a lot of dedicated public servants on both sides. Uh, I, I know a lot of Republicans with integrity. I've spoken to a lot of them who really get it, that health care is an issue, and especially that mental health care is an issue for well, our state. I, perhaps one of the exciting things about um, politics now is that there are there's a rising up of moderate Republicans. Yeah, well, you know, you asked yeah. me if I'd shift it. I'd still probably a moderate Republican, conservative, yeah. Democratic-ish. Yeah, you, I'm in the middle, like you, a lot of people. You cover a spectrum rather than a single <laughs> pole, one side or the other. But I think there's so many people in America yeah. who are like that. So, you know, right. for me, I have to focus on social justice issues, right. and that's going to send me to the left to the most left. of the time right now. Um, but, you know, I like the school conservatism, too. The problem right. is that when we don't provide care, that's my number one message. It's so much more expensive to deal with this reactively. Right. So the cost of prison, incarceration, the cost of society of all of that, it's much less expensive to be proactive and compassionate at the same time. So, what a thought. So it's almost <laughs> like, let's get some compassionate conservatism. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. like if people could really embrace that model. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's only in days like this that we realize how good George Bush really was. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting you bring George Bush up because I was a very young Mormon mom when that happened. And I, it was funny, I pulled out what I'd written in my journal that night. I was very disappointed by that outcome. I had, again, really liked Gore, President. My father worked with uh, Vice President Gore and had known mm-hmm. him and... Uh, they worked on some antitrust legislation in the 80s and you know my dad was just an amazing guy and if he vouched for somebody that guy was a good guy and he he really was impressed with Al Gore and just with his integrity with his you know the breadth of his knowledge on policy but mostly with his concern for people that was something that really mattered to my dad and so I I was devastated (laughs) when Gore lost but I did what we cannot do today I hunkered down 
I spent that time reading. I actually read nothing but behavioral economics textbooks for about two and a half years. <laughs> I got really into happiness science. Uh, made a lot of significant changes in my life. Uh, in um, I had been an Orange County housewife when that happened. So that transformation yeah. all kind of started there. I read a money a book called Your Money or Your Life that really oh, right. yes, yeah. changed yeah. my approach to money. Now I shop almost exclusively at thrift stores. You know, we're much more about experiences if we do have money. Much more about charitable giving if we have money. Um, so yeah, this shift all happened. Um, but I it was very hunkered down. I canceled cable news. Just didn't pay attention to George Bush or the world. Right? We can't do that this time. No. We have got to be checking every single day. So, the um, the the future. I mean, what where, what what's what do you have working on in the future? I mean, you said you're engaged in social justice. Is it broader than mental health issues? Oh, or, absolutely. So, do you see absolutely. your advocacy advocacy from mental health work launching you into other issues? Well, if you or, think about it, or, mental health interconnects with a lot of the big issues of our time. Right. Uh, really, the issue I'm thinking about is LGBTQ issues. Okay. Uh, because so many of those youth especially are marginalized and right. again we can see discrimination in suicide rates which right. be, I'm not saying that LGBTQ issues are mental health issues I'm not saying that at all right I'm but just the, saying that but the social stigma the social stigma exactly right. can uh, can you know maybe even cause or exacerbate and create trauma so right. when we look at that population I think there's um, a lot of work on the stigma side of things that coexists right. so um, that's definitely a huge passion for me, making sure that so they how do, how, rights. So how does that connect, or um, I think there's a wonderful connection, so this isn't a trick question, but mm. just, you know, how do, how do you see that fitting in with the Roman Catholicism piece, <laughs> LBGTQ? Well, yeah, we've got Pope Francis now, right? Uh, this is the answer to everything, right? Pope Francis, dude. I mean, <laughs> yeah. so, so do you think there's a shift in the awareness within the, yeah. within the church? Oh, within absolutely. The Roman Catholic Church? Absolutely, there's a shift. And, you know, that's why I said, you know, like, I think the interesting thing about Catholicism is that uh, compared to Mormonism, Catholicism has been having a very long dialogue with itself for 2,000 years, right? right? And that dialogue's taken a lot of different forms. Like, if you really looked at the early church, which is where I, uh, you know, that was where I did my master's degree work in the early church, uh, it's very different from what the Roman Catholic Church looks like today. And in a lot of ways, I see Pope Francis kind of bringing us back around. It's very likely women were ordained in right. the early church. Right. Um, it's very likely there was gay marriage in the early church. And so as we, you know, look at where we've been and maybe coming full circle, you have to consider, especially with Catholics, the role of the church as a political tool. Right. You know, starting with Constantine, the, the church kind of took a shift when it became a tool of a politician to, yep. to shape people's views. Uh, so, yeah, yeah it's a, it's a la- maybe a lazy answer to say Pope Francis, but man, he's rocking it. <laughs> so, so, yeah, Pope Francis is to, rocking just it. Just to say Pope Francis is almost like, well, what's the appropriate question to any, what's the appropriate answer to any question Pope in church Francis, in, in, yeah. in Sunday school? It's Jesus, you know? Right. Oh, that can be Pope Francis. It's yeah. the same thing. Like, well, I think that's exactly the point, right? When you look at Jesus's issues, they were not gay marriage and abortion. No. <laughs> like, no. those those just were not yeah. Jesus's issues. Well, let's see. No. It must have been in the Gnostics, because I didn't see it in it's the synopsis. The Gnostics, it's not in the Gnostics either. I've read them. <laughs> I've read them in Greek. It's not there. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, those, you know, the issues that were important to Jesus were social justice issues. And that is absolutely what attracted me to Catholicism was that pull toward the poor, right? right. The Lord hears the cry of the poor. Uh, and again, poverty is a mental health issue. So, uh, 
I wow. entertain my doctorate in organizational leadership. You ask where I'd like to go next. I would really like to go to corporations. Really? I just feel like, uh, I gave a presentation to Hewlett Packard, for example. They invited me in uh, for Disability Awareness Week. And I feel like um, people who live with mental health conditions do not um, have a work world that uses their strengths. Let me right. just put it that way. So, you know, we may not be able to expect someone living with bipolar disorder to work a nine to five job. But at the same time, corporations are actually robbing themselves of the diversity factor and frankly of the out of the box creative factor that um, workers who uh, live with illness, any kind of illness, but right. especially mental illness can bring to their companies. And so I think we need to rethink the world of work. So do you think corporations have this special place kind of as, a, as that, that uh, fulcrum? The, the lever to well, I think we're seeing that even in politics right now, right? right? That's what right. we're seeing in politics. People are grabbing their wallets, right. right? And I think that corporations have a leadership role in disability, not only disability awareness, but I hate that word disability too. They say differently abled. Uh, you know, corporations have a real role in promoting for themselves as well as for society. Like right. <laughs> for the bottom, I mean, that's where good. That's where you're compassionate conservatism might play in right. you know they can you can do good and still make right. money absolutely so, so socially <laughs> responsible corporations aren't that, all, they're not bad they, they can only they can only do that if they make money right right uh, exactly yeah. and I'm saying, exist and they're I'm saying you've let you've got this whole right. population that you just kind of overlooked because you're afraid right, right? you're oh you're afraid of mental illness and so you've overlooked this really um, incredible the other strength was so funny as I was doing my dissertation research. So we talked about leadership principles, you know, which you know really well right. too, and recovery principles for people living with mental illness. They're the same. <laughs> They're exactly <laughs> the same. Yeah. So if you've got somebody yeah. who's living in recovery with right. schizophrenia or bipolar, they have resilience, conflict competence, uh, the ability to, to really interact with a wide group of people. Right. They have huge amounts of empathy. They're basically your dream leaders right there. Wow, and they've already done the training because that's right. what that's what they live every day. The same principles. So wow, that's wonderful. And I just you know that's what my dissertation did. My doctoral dissertation looked at leadership studies over here, recovery work over here. Why hasn't anybody put the two together? <laughs> put the two together, and oh, they're actually the same thing, you know. And that I think that has implications even. And of course, my study was small, but you know, even looking right. at the literature, I think uh, has implications for even how we brand. Uh, mental health therapy for like white men, right? right. Or for Hispanic youths, because there's a traditionally a huge stigma against mental health um, conditions within uh, some minority populations. Um, so Hispanic or uh, African American youth, what if we rebranded um, whatever they're doing in juvenile justice as a leadership coaching program? You know, we're training the next yes. leaders. We're we're creating the next Cory Booker, the next President Obama, and you can do this through leadership coaching. So. But it's that's the same cool. stuff. It's that's the same cool. stuff. And that seems like a really <laughs> yeah. good direction to head. Yeah, so. oh, I, I'm excited. I mean, oh. if I ever get around to like not being like, well, yeah, I'm not lazy. I got a few things on my plate. Well, yeah, lazy. <laughs> Let's see. If I ever four, get... four kids, PhD, teacher, advocate. Don't forget, uh, pianist. Yeah, uh, yeah. I did that, and you asked where I am. Yeah, I played for so. the Apostles for a lot of years. Now I'm playing with the Unitarians. I'm sure I'll be back. To, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. So I don't think lazy works. Well, yeah. I I have cut back a little bit though. I think that um, this is important for any advocate. You can burn out, right. and especially right now, with all of the fronts <laughs> that we're faced with every day, I think self care is important for everybody. Right. So it's okay to turn off your phone for a little while. It's okay yeah. to 
to step back, to go yeah. for a walk, to right. uh, to even acknowledge your sadness. You or know, to go hike in the middle of nowhere. Right. You, you, you and Ed enjoy that. We do. So. We do. we've been wanting to do that a lot more lately. Yeah. But I think you know I think it's okay to do that to just to to acknowledge sadness, loss, grief. I think a lot of us are going through that right now, um, and that's important. It's really important because you ha- we have to be strong for populations who maybe can't speak as loudly for themselves. And part of that self-care is being, also you've got to, well, we're going to have to be strong for the long term. Precisely, right. This uh, is a marathon, it's not a sprint. Yeah, and, and after, you know, however many consecutive Saturdays of, of you know, uh, I, pro- like the mar- I like the marches. I think we should have oh, them every Saturday. I think they're, they're very, wonderful. They're very but, energizing. But maybe we need to <laughs> take turn, turns, yeah. you know, the, you know, like football teams have defense and offense that yeah. exchange time on the field. Yeah. Uh, just, but I can well, imagine right. exhaustion kicking in. But there again, that's where I think that training as a mental health advocate has uniquely positioned a lot of us for this current right. fight because it, it's you have to be in for the long haul. Yeah. You're not going to see these changes happen overnight. Right. It's just not like that. And, you know, the shift happens very slowly. But I think at the same time, you do reach a, a tipping point in awareness. Right. I think we saw that with LG, LGBTQ rights, with gay marriage, where all of a sudden people realized, oh, yeah. yeah. It, 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 and it's, it, the needle doesn't just cross halfway. It goes, it goes all the way. All the, all the way over. Well, what it really comes down to, and this is what I encourage people who listen, especially people of faith, it comes down to learning to talk openly about these issues and also getting to know people. I mean, right. I, I certainly see that as a, what won over the gay marriage debate. When you realized it wasn't these other people over there right. that you didn't know, when you realized it was your neighbor, right. you're like, oh, I really like my neighbor. Never mind. I, exactly. You know? Yeah. So same thing with mental illness. I promise you, if you say to yourself, I don't know anyone living with serious mental illness, I promise you, you do. And we, yeah, I, we know that's not true. I yeah. Mean, yeah right. So what is it about you that makes it uncomfortable for people yeah. to share? <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. I, right. I just think that's a legitimate question. Yeah. Self-reflection you, there. Right? Yeah. If you tell me that you don't know anyone, I say, well, really, what yeah. is it about you that makes people uncomfortable? Like one, out, one out of four, one out of five of the people you know mm-hmm. are in that category at some level. Yeah. At some time in their life. Yeah, but there again, without at all diminishing the struggles of people who are living with, um, say, situational depression, because right. it's very serious. I've, I've lived with it myself. It's right. a very serious thing. Um, I do think we have to focus our energy and certainly our resources and funds on folks who are living with severe mental illness. Right, because That's, the situational issues tend our, to be Our healthcare system for, takes care of right, that. Right. It takes care of that. And I'm not saying, you know, I think the stigma can still keep people from right. getting help in those situations right. when they need it. And that's that can be a challenge. Um, I've definitely seen that, especially with white men, Craig. Yeah, exactly. I have a really hard time. Yeah. You know, therapy's for girls. Right? Oh, yeah. No, we don't <laughs> need that. Therapy. Yeah. Right? Go hang out in my man cave. And exactly. <laughs> and that's a societal problem. That's why I love feminism, Turn right? Into a comatose, uh, you know. Couch potato. Uh, feminism has <laughs> freed white men to go to therapy. That's the real, that's good. That's the real benefit like of feminism, right there. Well, but. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start moving toward the end. Yeah. We, we, with, I know with we the, could talk about so many things. With with, with, with our interviews, we, we do conclude it with four questions. Four questions. Okay. Ooh. And um, so try to ask the same general questions to all of our guests. All right. So, and these aren't heavy hitters necessarily. Oh, good. So. First one is, uh, what are you drinking these days? What am I drinking these days? <laughs> That's such a good question. Well, um, I don't know if you'll like my answer. I, I'm cutting back, especially on alcohol use. And yeah. the reason for that is, frankly, I think these are times where we need clear heads. <laughs> 
So become a green tea maker um, or? Oh, coffee's still my spirit coffee. animal okay, for sure. But go. yeah, no, I'm kind of like, you asked what are you drinking? And uh, I thought immediately about an essay I'm working on that's explaining why I'm consciously trying to drink less. I've, right. I'm sure like, like me, you've seen a lot of those, oh, it's the end of the world, let's all go have a misery hour. Yeah. And I don't think that's the right solution. No. I'm not trying to shame people who drink either by saying right. that. Right. But I think that in my own life, I'm definitely trying to um, focus on moderation. Well, I, 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 I like the answer you gave for one reason. I thought I knew what you were going to say. Really? Yes. And I can't remember what it is now. It's the beer that you enjoyed. Oh, uh, the it's what's the name of the... I definitely still enjoy beer. Yeah, which is the one in... Oh, there's some ale, like Thelonious Monk ale. That was it, oh yeah. Oh my gosh, that I was love it. that yeah. stuff. No, and I definitely yeah. still occasionally have a, have a nice glass. So then, okay, so <laughs> what are you, what are you um, reading or uh, listening to podcast-wise? What, what, what are you absorbing? What are you, what are you getting into right now? <laughs> you will laugh at what I'm reading right now. I am just finishing Scott Stossel's The Age of My Anxiety. And it's a perfect oh, book. Okay. It's the perfect book for right now. Um, and he wrote, it came out a few years ago, right. so it's been on my list for a long time. But um, I'm co-reading that with Game of Thrones. I have to admit, I, it's my cheap guilty pleasure. I'm <laughs> on, balancing the, I'm the, on book five of Game of Thrones. Only, what, nine more to go or whatever <laughs> it is? Whatever. Yeah. I might end up bailing on it. I, I sometimes bail on fantasy series, but, you know, I finally decided to yeah, but Age of My Anxiety seems like uniquely suited to the, the times time. we're living in. So instead of reading 1984. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, okay. I thought I had it for a few more minutes. Can we finish up real quick? We'll finish really fast. <laughs> so oh. we got to finish. Yay. All right. Let That's me just ask you this real quick. Yeah. Where would you take us to eat if anybody came and visited you? Where would I take you to eat? Oh gosh, there's so many great places in Boise. That's tough. I think right now it'd be Pho um, Le, the new Pho place that's on um, on Broadway. That's so, where I'd go. So we gotta wrap up because our place pho, is Pho is comfort food. Uh, and so I've heard right of now. Pho. Yeah, it's, we need it. Yeah, it's really good. So, uh, but uh, we're gonna have more more information on the website how you can follow Liza at Anarchist Soccer Mom. She has a Twitter <laughs> account, uh, uh, LizaLong.com, I believe. Mm -hmm. uh, you that's can right. go to. Yep. And so we'll get uh, that information on the podcast site. Oh, great. Thank Thanks, you Liza. so much for having me, Craig. <laughs>
Today we're going to be talking with uh, Matthew Kimming. And Ma- Matt, how do you say your last name? It's uh, K Mink. Mink. Okay. So I wasn't sure how to get that G and that K in there. So K Mink. <laughs> Matt's the executive director of uh, the uh, Fuller Institute for Theology and Northwest Culture and uh, a leader and uh, director for the Christ in Cascadia uh, project that includes conferences uh, and a really fascinating website with lots of great articles. So, Matt, how did you happen to get to the Pacific Northwest? Are you a Pacific Northwesterner yourself? Or where, where did you come from and what's your story having, you know, how, you, how did you get here? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I grew up here uh, in North Seattle. Um, and uh, went out to Whitworth University in Spokane and uh, became quite interested in issues of theology, culture, faith and public life. And uh, went off to grad school at both Princeton and Fuller Seminary and um, completed a PhD out in Amsterdam. So, um, but uh, after all that grad school, came back home here to the Pacific Northwest sort of a common strain for me through all of that has been, you know, um, God God calling me to cities that are thought of, I think, regularly as secular and progressive. So doing ministry in Seattle, New York, L.A., Amsterdam, um, places where you don't really have a, a thick Christendom like you might in, uh, say, the American South. So, so I think that's interesting. So, how many years did you spend outside or away from Seattle then, through LA, New York, and Amsterdam? Yeah, it was about it was about eleven years um, out. And so, I think when you leave your region and then come back, you you notice new things. And basically, what happened was when I was finishing my doctoral work, uh, Fuller Seminary received a grant from the Murdoch Charitable Trust here in the Pacific Northwest. And both the seminary and the trust um, felt the need to cultivate conversations with Christian leaders in the Pacific Northwest about um, what was really happening um, here and what were the major challenges for the church culturally throughout the region and uh, what were the emerging opportunities and sort of examples of ministry innovation in this region. So that's what we what we set out to do. So when did that uh, take place? How long ago did that that begin? Um, well, that was four years ago that the grant was received. Okay. And then um, let's see, four years ago the grant was received, and then um, we spent about six months just um, traveling at the very beginning, traveling around, meeting with pastors, meeting with scholars and other Christian leaders throughout the region, and just asking them a series of questions about what was happening here and getting a sense of the major issues, the major, um, questions, and then thinking through how we might partner with other schools and seminaries and organizations, um, to sort of provide a platform or curate a conversation around, you know, what is, what is the future of the church here in this region? And what, what does it need to look like in this next century? So thinking about kind of the future of the church or what it looks like in the, the this, this century and, and, and moving forward, 
the the religious or Christian history of the region itself, going back a hundred years or so or more, is kind of a unique region compared to the rest of the United States, um, as far as different mission and church planting endeavors, you know, from the 18th and 19th centuries and even into the 20th century. It, this this was not one of those hot spots like you know Methodists in Georgia or you know Lutherans in 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 Minnesota. I mean, whose whose place had been you know who who was here in the Northwest? I mean, who 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 called it home? Yeah, well, the the history is really important to understand because it, it has a big impact on uh, our cultural zeitgeist today. So um, the fact that um, the Pacific Northwest, um, as far as white settlers go, was really founded by entrepreneurs and fortune seekers. Right. So people who were seeking their fortune through uh, mining, logging, fur, um, resources, and later on industry, um, and, uh, and now technology. But it's really been, uh, it's a region founded by pioneering entrepreneurs. Which makes our culture very innovative, very self-sufficient. Um, our culture is not really interested in um, what family you come from, what you know, where you went to school. There, our culture is more interested in what you do. Um, what's what's your what's your work? What's your identity connected with your work? And um, what your vision of the future is. So it can be really a very idealistic um, culture about the future and what we can do and what we're dreaming about. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't have a lot of interest in sort of family or institutional past or past reputation. Um, it's really much more about the future. And on top of that, whereas other regions of the United States, people went to those places to establish a religious community um, or sort of achieve religious freedom. Um, people often move to the Pacific Northwest to get away from uh, religious communities and really create their own identity. So the Pacific Northwest really functions for a lot of people as a place where you can make yourself new again in, in along with everything that that, you know, with all those connotations of I get to make myself my own authentic, uh, new future. So it's a chance to leave behind, um, sort of the family, the religion, the culture of the past and come to the Pacific Northwest and make something new for me, um, to define myself. Yeah. In, in, in my own um, heritage, the, the, the Mennonite Church, the way they describe why they are in the Willamette Valley is they tried to escape Ohio and Pennsylvania. They ran into the ocean and then bounced back a little. But they, they, they tell the story that kind of running away. But they talk about it as running away in communities. You know, they, uh, it sounds like what you're talking about is much more individualistic. Yes. Yeah, and so a key challenge there for for your community is is obviously going to be holding on to that sense of communal identity when the whole culture around you is individualistic. Right. So 
that may be a part of the Mennonite past, but will it be a part of your children's future? Right. And um, the same is true for immigrant communities coming to the Pacific Northwest from, say, Asia mm-hmm. or Africa who have thicker communal cultural and family ties that sort of bind them together. Um, those, they, their first generation may be sick when they move to a place like Seattle or Portland, but they struggle as their children and their grandchildren grow up in a very individualistic culture, um, to hold on to those ties. So So how, how is affinity and community created in this region? Because I, I'm thinking of, um, you know some of the some of the things like uh, Tim Sorens and Paul Sparks and um, you know Dwight Friesen wrote about in in uh, the, the New Parish I think it was, you know and and some of these small communities but people finding one another creating affinity, is that intentionally running counter to that individualistic story or is, or how do you how do you see the development or creation of community? Yeah, um, so this individualism you know, naturally, um, it hits the rocks because, you know, as they say, no man is an island. And so the sense of individualism and fragmentation um, doesn't last for people. So inevitably, they start looking for connection and um, meaning in community. Um, and so people throughout the culture will try and connect with others through hiking or doing yoga together or um, going to sports events together, drinking beer together. Um, they're, they're reaching out and longing for that, that sort of haunting sense that it's not good for us to be alone. Um, and so what Tim Sorens and Paul Sparks are doing, really it's no surprise that it's come out of the Pacific Northwest, is they see you know, whole neighborhoods of isolated individuals, isolated, lonely individuals. And they, they're saying to the church, look, this is an opportunity. You know, you have people longing for community, aching for it. The church should be cultivating that. Um, but the challenge, and they would tell you this as well, is that while people in this region long for community and connection, um, they don't know how to do it. And, uh, it, and what I mean by that is um, they struggle to give themselves to a community to sort of pay the cost of what it takes to be a part of the community. Um, and so that's really the, the tension or the paradox of living in this region and trying to do ministry in this region is you have a lot of lonely people who long for connection but who are not practiced in giving themselves, you know, wholly and completely to a community. They want to hold on to their individual sovereignty and authenticity. They, they want to be, you know, they're pioneers. They have to take care of themselves out on the, on the frontier. They, they don't want to give themselves or depend on anyone else. One of the interesting things just in, in kind of describing some of that, uh, that aspect of the culture, there's a strong uh, pull for folks who are looking for some kind of, you know, uh, spiritual experience. I mean, the way I've heard it is the outdoors is my church. Um, the, the outdoors or recreational 
activities, hiking, fishing, skiing, canoeing, kayaking, uh, anything that gets you out in the woods, out on the ocean, out in the sound. I mean, those seem to be a, a huge drive. Uh, that seems to be a huge drive for so many people. Um, does does the how does the nature or the the uh, the geography the the land itself play into that? Yeah, well, um, there are a number of ways to come at this. Um, what historians would say is that because our geography is so immense, um, and by that I mean our mountains are huge; they dwarf us, and the ocean is so powerful and vast it dwarfs us. It is difficult to imagine that you are in charge of the world in the Pacific Northwest, that the world will do what you tell it to. Um, because nature is so much bigger than us here. And so the, the geography itself inspires a sense of awe and wonder and a sense of our own finitude. Um, so that's one way you can think about why this is here in the region. Um, you could also think of it in terms of just the sheer beauty of this place it inspires that kind of awe and wonder. Um, uh, but then there's, there's one other way to look at it, and that is that um, is just the, the role of um, post-modernity in um in the region and that's more of um the way in which um people in this region think about spirituality is not in terms of systems and dogmas and institutions and more in terms of emotions and environment and experiences so the tension we get is you have a lot of churches who approach faith as a system of beliefs and dogmas, a set of ethical expectations, and um, membership in a religious institution. And then you have a culture that thinks about faith and spirituality yeah, in terms of emotions and experiences and um, tries to cultivate those emotions and experiences. And so for some of them, those um, experiences are found in nature. For others of them, it's found in concerts and art galleries and film festivals. And for still others, it's found in like, you know, friendship activities, uh, going out to beer and, and um, just hanging out. So that's it's sort of a combination of factors as to why nature plays such a such a large role. And then I think finally the the last thing is just the presence of uh various forms of new age spiritualities and eco spiritualities which see God as both within us and within nature and express a sort of pantheistic or panentheistic uh, understanding of the world that um, the world is haunted or enchanted right. by something more, um, and that it's critical that we we get in contact with that something more. Um, yeah. So, so given that 
this this kind of cultural um, geography. And uh, so, what what is what is the Christ uh, and Cascadia um, endeavor seeking to accomplish? Seeking to accomplish or or provide? Yes. Well, you know, honestly, a big part of it is is just to cultivate the conversation. So it's not about me you know, providing all the answers of this is what the church should do, (laughs) but more um, finding lots of people throughout the region who are thinking about these things, diverse voices from different denominations, um, from different races, from different um, uh, cities, to all talk about what they're seeing from their specific context and to give a window into it. So our journal has published more than a hundred articles now um, on all kinds of questions related to faith and culture in this place. And we're trying to be the place to talk about that. Um, but um, I do do, I do a little bit of speaking on these topics and I've done my own research on these topics, but I consider myself to be one voice uh, amongst many. Um, of trying to figure that out, so it's a project. It's a it's a journey that we haven't we haven't finished yet. The um, what so so talk about what what happens at uh, the conference and what the conference schedule is. There's a conference usually in the fall, and then there's uh, like a specific kind of a subcategory in the spring. Is that correct? Or maybe not the well, yeah, the way. Sure. The way we've structured it is we have a conference every fall and um, every other year it's different. So um, we have this fall, we have a topical conference. Um, And so this this fall, we're going to be talking about faith and nature, faith and the environment. Um, And two years ago, we talked about faith and technology. So we, we pick a specific topic that is really big in the culture uh, around the Pacific Northwest, around Cascadia. Right. And, um, and then in the off years, we do a general Christ and Cascadia conference where it's just sort of everybody come and present on all sorts of topics related to faith and culture here. So that's what we did last fall. So this November... We're going to be focused specifically um, on the issue of faith and nature, um, and that includes environmental stewardship, but also theology and creation, and theology and recreation, and all of those things. So that's sort of the idea. Most of our conversation happens online through the journal, right. but you know, once a year, we really want to bring people physically together from all over the region to talk. And those conferences include um, pastors and scholars, and they also include just activists and people in the marketplace and artists. And artists, yeah. Um, who also, fascinating one, yeah. yeah, because we think that um, to really understand this region, you don't, <laughs> you don't just want to listen to theologians or pastors. You need to pay attention to the people who are out in the culture are actually engaging and, and tilling the soil. So, yeah, that's the reason. So, one of the, one of the things about the journal what what is what is the web address uh, website for the journal? It's Christ 
and Cascadia.com. All right. And that's all one word? Christ and Cascadia? Yep. No hyphens or underscores or anything. Good, good. Um, yep. So for, for people to uh, learn more about the conference, learn about the conversations, uh, that that the journal is a good place to begin. Is there there's also a conference website, isn't there? Um, there is, but we're we're finalizing our fall conference right now, so it's not it's not up on the site yet. But everything will be right up there on the journal, and you can can uh, click on a little button that says subscribe, and then you will get all emails uh, about the conference and things like that. Don't worry, you won't get a lot of emails. We don't send them out very often. But um, that's a good place to, yeah, it's a good place to stay connected to the conversation. And, and the conversations are, are great. I mean, there's, there's articles on fly fishing, uh, the Seahawks. I liked one last week, which was about uh, beer is a theological, uh, you know, um, oh, how was that phrase? But uh, it's a, you know, beer's a, beer is a, a theological good. A theological good. <laughs> yeah. Really good. Yeah, right. Yeah. As, as a home brewer, I like that one a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, what we'd like to do is oh, catch up you. with you again as the conference gets closer and um, kind of see how it's shaping up and some of the themes that you see uh, forming and maybe uh, a ways for people to continue to lean into the conversation. It sounds great. Craig. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for, for being there. Really um, kind of excited about, about uh, the work that you're doing there and glad that uh, the uh, Fuller uh, Northwest Center is, has taken this on. It's kind of a just a real welcome uh, resource here in the in, in the area. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for your work. This is this is a great conversation to be having. I'm friends with the monster, the sun in my bed. Get along with the voices inside of my head. You're trying to save me, stop holding your breath. And you think I'm crazy, yeah, you think I'm crazy. I wanted the fame, but not the cover of Newsweek. Oh well, guess beggars can't be choosy. Wanted to receive attention from my music. Wanted to be left alone in public, excuse me. But wanting my cake and eat it too. And wanting it both ways. Fame made me a balloon. Cause my ego inflated when I blew see. But it was confusing. Cause all I wanted to do is be the Bruce Lee of loosely abused ink. Use it as a tool when I blew steam. Woo! Hit the lottery, ooh, wee. But with what I gave up to get, it was bittersweet. It was like winning a used me. Ironic, cause I think I'm getting so huge, I need a shrink. I'm beginning to lose sleep. One sheep, two sheep, going cuckoo and kooky is cool key. But I'm actually weirder than you think. Cause I'm, I'm friends with the monster, the son of my bed. Get along with the voices inside of my head. You trying to save me, stop holding your breath. And you think I'm crazy, yeah, you think I'm crazy. Well, that's not fair. It's two-minute warning time. All right, so the, 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 the question is, when sharing a room with somebody else and they are snoring, is it ever appropriate to wake them up to say, stop snoring? Or is that just plain rude? I mean, Okay, here we go. Right. Or there are alternatives. Okay. Christina sounded like she had an answer, so she should go first. She's, she's going yeah. first. I, this, okay. is a, this is a real easy one. Is, Hold on, let me get a timer. Oh, okay, I don't need a timer. It's real. <laughs> well, you've got 45 seconds to fill up, it. so you just got to. 
Okay. Well, I can talk Ready. about it. Speak slowly, then. <laughs> Begin. Um, no, I think that this is the exact situation that earplugs were invented for. Earplugs. Yeah, just just pop those in and you're good to go. Okay. I mean, earplugs. I don't. Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily rude to wake up a snoring person and be like, "You're snoring and you need to shut up." But if they're a regular snorer, as soon as they go back to sleep, they're going to go right back to snoring. So right. it's not going to do any good. That's in in my experience like with snoring people, yeah, earplugs all the way. Earplugs are the way to go. Okay. All right. So, Craig, I'm going to use I'm, I'm going to use Christina's 20, uh, 15 seconds that she didn't use. Okay, go. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think it's much more complex than that. For instance, I know that I am a, a snorer, so it is incumbent upon me to go buy nasal strips and to ah. take antihistamines or decongestants before I go to sleep. It's not incumbent upon the sufferer to plug their ears. I, I I think I think that's just a that that's just a travesty of justice to leave it on the victim, blaming the victim for the lack of sleep. You know you have a point. So, however, it's however, a it's, solid more, it's, point. it's more complicated because as a snorer, I don't get a good night's sleep. So I too am a victim, and so if you wake me up to say stop snoring, I am double victimized. <laughs> So I think That's snorers a, should just know that they're snorers and make sure they get nasal strips. So Some people don't know so, that they snore. I know. That's sad. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Craig, you still technically have like 10 seconds. Oh, well, I think I closed the book on that one sufficiently. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, here's what I want to say. So <clears throat> I think it could actually be polite to wake that person up. And here's why. Okay. Well, I uh, I suffer from uh, sleep apnea, so I snore, and if I don't happen to have my machine with me, and I'm snoring away, it means I'm not sleeping in a proper position for me to be getting the clear passageway that I need, and if someone comes and wakes me up, I kind of appreciate it. Maybe not initially, because I'm like, what the, why are you, uh? but... <laughs> I do appreciate it because it means, okay, I need to reposition myself so that I'm getting that clear passageway and my my brain is getting the oxygen that it needs in order for me to, you know, function. So it could be a polite thing in that instance well, you know, because you're helping that person. That just made me think that the, so fray, the fray needs to add another stanza to the song How to Save a Life. <laughs> wake up that snorer! Wake up that wake up that snorer! You may inadvertently be saving their life. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so it's more complex than it seems on the face of it all. It, 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 it is presented it, many many options. So. But but there there you go. So but there are options. So so as I get as I prepare for my trip to Seattle, I am not only going to buy nasal strips. I'm also going to get yes. earplugs. Yes. Oh, that's Bring nice of you. <laughs> the earplugs well, are for me. I guess I'll buy a than, pack. <laughs> I was going to say, bring more than one set. That would, be, that would be nice of me, so I'll do that. Yeah. You can, you can get all the earplugs you need for life for like a dollar. So.